Not only is eBay bringing you this podcast, we're giving you your very own 4th of July coupon for an additional 20% off already reduced select items on our site. That means really big savings on everything you need to make your living space the ultimate summer staycation. Get a backyard barbecue for family grill fests, super style and patio furniture, board games that are far from boring, and portable speakers to get your dance party started. Grab your 4th of July coupon for an additional 20% off at ebay.com now through July 6th. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is supported by Blue Apron, The Great Courses Plus, and ZipRecruiter. And we're back as 2017 already starts to fly past us. That it does, friend. Well, we have some ground to cover tonight, so let's hop right back into the thick of it. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I thought, with all due respect to Madame la Comtesse, that the devil had long since made a mantle out of the skin of this personage. Madame Dadamar's maid, as she explained that the Count of Saint Germain was waiting to see her. From Dadamar's book, Souvenir de la Marie Antoinette, published in 1836. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the seemingly immortal master of all trades, arts, sciences, and languages, the Count of Saint Germain. Okay, so we're back to talk a little bit more about the Count of St. Germain with part two of our series on this man. And I want to reflect a little bit on what we talked about last week. We're going to start out with a little bit of a recap just to remind people where we're at and why we're talking about him. I'm sure some people are like, well, yeah, he sounds like he could do a lot of things. He would, yeah. Lots of people could do lots of things. But Forrest, what would you say is there's, contributes more to that yeah, interest? Really, there's two things to keep in mind. Again, the show is Astonishing Legends. This guy is legendary in his own time and to this day. When you say like, yeah, he could do a bunch of things, but that's not so great, is it? I mean, people can do a bunch of different types of things. Well, look at the list of everything that he could do. Compose music. He could play several different instruments perfectly, they said, concert level. Yes, and uh, And he actually performed. He actually toured and performed. We're gonna hear a little bit about that tonight. Right, and he, at the time of his performances, was considered a contemporary of Handel. Yes. That he was that good as a composer. And again, there's one quote I remember that said if he had not been so famous for all this other baloney, this business that he was involved with, he could have been a famous violinist. That's right. That and he was so good that some people actually thought that he was a second identity for a famous violinist, which we mentioned last week, Giovannini. Exactly. His lifespan actually was right in the window of the same supposed years that people primarily identify with his possible date of birth and inside of that, his birth and death. Right. One of his deaths. Exactly. Which is what brings us to the next part of what's really amazing about him. What? That he's... Not necessarily dead. That he died. (laughs) That was the other big thing. Yeah. Look, painter, sculptor, obviously was considered a chemist at the time, gemologist, and could speak eight to 10 languages that we know of or more, at least those are the ones he spoke fluently. So my point is, how many people like that do you know? How many people in our current era could do any of those things? There are certainly people now who can do amazing things. A man named Daniel, who counted out pi for five hours straight, didn't miss a digit. He has a special condition. He, as himself describes, he is a high-functioning person with Asperger's. But those are just a few things that he can do. So somebody who does all of these different things that are kind of amazing for a human being to do, that's one side of it. The other one... And here's the general timeline, is he came onto the scene in Western Europe in 1710. 
He was known to people then. He was first sighted at 1710 as looking 45 to 50 years old. That's right. And by the way, we're acknowledging the fact that last week we indicated that some of his considered birth dates are possibly 1694 to 1691, in which case in 1710, he should have only been about 15 or 20. And this is something that gets touched on tonight is that he reported different ages all throughout his life and over several hundred years. <laughs> he kept <laughs> so, Just look, keep that in mind yeah. when you're like, well, what, what is this guy? Right. And like I said in the first part, that unnerves people. When somebody doesn't give you a straight answer about who they are, what their real name is, where they're from, what they're doing, what are you doing? What are you playing at? That bugs people. So he was kind of taking it as jest. And he gave a bunch of different names, I believe, even to his close friends, he was hinting at certain things, but I don't think he was totally honest. And the reason of his contemporaries give at the time was that he may have been protecting somebody. And then here's the other part of that. So 1710, the last time he checks out or, or this main timeline that we can confirm, 1820. Not looking 110 years old, still looking 45 to 50. That has been documented at the time by several different people of high rank and notability I pointed this out to Scott earlier today. When you see on the Smucker's birthday salute and somebody is... On the you know, Today Show. Yeah, on the Today Show. Which God, I think they... I yeah. don't know. I guess they're still doing it, but I think... I, I think oh, uh, yes. That was... Uh, what's his name? Step down. That's right. Will- Willard. Willard Scott, yes. Yes. Step down. Because he, well, he himself was himself ready to be on a jar Not a generarian. Yeah. When you see, you know, God bless him, they're 115 maybe, 105. And some of the oldest people who had just celebrated a birthday, maybe at 114, 120 even... They look 110. <laughs> they, they look 120. They look their age. He, for all accounts that we know, did not. All right, so that's a recap of where we were last week. Now I want to talk a little bit about where we're going tonight. We have the pleasure of having two interviewees who we talked to. with somebody that we mentioned last week. Her name is Jessie Desmond. She runs a blog that she's had for a long time, which you can find at Finding Count St. Germain, St. is abbreviated S-T, dot blogspot.com, where she has collected a lot of data over the years about St. Germain, and she's actually working on a book about him. So we talked to her, and we took that interview, and we're going to be talking a little bit about what her findings were and reacting to some of the information that she's dug up over the years. We're also, firstly, going to hear from our friend Travis Dow, who has a podcast called The History of Alchemy, among many other podcasts, which you can find at podcastnick.com. That's his website, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-N-I-K.com. Or at, directly at the at historyofalchemy, all one word, dot com. Yes. Great writing, and he does it with Pete Coleman, a lot of time as a co-host, and those guys are great. They really, unlike us, they really know their business. <laughs> we just <laughs> They're well-educated. Yeah, we're, we just play at it. Yeah, we just play at it. And what's great is Travis agreed to talk to us about alchemy because he was the expert that we really knew that had something to say about it. So we're going to have him on the show tonight. Right. He's also part of the Dark Myths Collective, yes. darkmyths.org, which a lot of great shows on there. And uh, you'll see, just go to that site, we'll have a link to it. But he is part of our collective. That's how we got to know him. Right. So what we're going to do now is go to our interview with Travis, and you're going to get to hear a little bit about what he thinks of the Count of St. Germain. Take it away, Travis. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. So The History of Alchemy is co-hosted with Pete Coleman, and I'm Travis Dow. And we mentioned the Comte de Saint-Germain because, well, he's a polymath and an entertaining one, but among his many talents, it's said that he was a chemist, which fits in with the history of alchemy. And um, he was even set up with an alchemist lab and made his living that way for a while towards the end of his life. It was said he was many things, in fact, as Forrest Scott and the crew will tell you, like he allegedly discovered universal medicine, sort of like the elixir of life, in a sense. 
And so it was said that he was 300 years old, and maybe even made it to the 19th or 20th century. As a short example, at one of Madame de Pompadour's little get-togethers, Saint-Germain was doing what he does best, captivating the audience, where the Countess Georgie seems to not be able to believe her eyes and couldn't take them off of the Count de Saint-Germain all evening, perhaps even a little afraid of him. And finally, the Countess says, Will you have the kindness to tell me whether your father was in Venice about the year 1710? Now, mind you, this is before the Comte was actually born, but uh, he said, no, madame, replied the Count. It is very much longer since I lost my father, but I myself was living in Venice at the end of the last and the beginning of this century. I had the honor to pay your court visit then. He brought up some memories, and the Countess interrupts and saying, forgive me, but that's impossible. The Comte de Saint-Germain I knew in those days was at least 45 years old, and you, at the outside, are at that age at present. Madame, replied the Count, smiling, I am indeed very old but then you must be nearly a hundred years old. That is not impossible. And then the Count recounted to Madame of Georgie a number of familiar little details which uh, only they would remember in his visit to the Venetian States. At some point, she cut him off, a little flustered, called him a devil, where he got flustered. And most of all, I think this just shows he's a very charismatic storyteller, but a sort of entertainer with kind of courtly ambitions. He liked to be near power, Today, he might be a stand-up comic, but a lot of truth was mixed in with these legends. And here's my personal thoughts, because including that little story, that little story was not a first-person account. It was kind of a secondary source at best, more like a, my cousin once told me a story that the Countess Georgie told him, that sort of thing. A tertiary source at best, really. And this is what's tough to get to when speaking of people like the Count de Saint-Germain, but also of other mysterious figures and even like especially alchemists, let's say, and others throughout history, secondary sources abound about the Comte. But already in his lifetime, people were mocking him. Uh, he was already famous enough, like famous mime in Paris, whose antics got mixed up with the Counts himself. And this mime was doing satire, but saying he was as old as and personally knew Jesus. And this made the legends of the real Count de Saint-Germain even bigger. And primary sources, though, are very few. Those that do exist, Sure, they show a man with a very mysterious youth, yet probably had a normal lifespan all within the 18th century. But all of that just makes me wish we could go back and meet the guy all that much more. Just stand in the room while he's working his captivating magic, telling lurid stories and tall tales, maybe mixed with some little street performer charm. But now that we have Scott, Forrest, et al. from Astonishing Legends digging up dirt, I'm sure they'll get to the truth. Okay, so we're going to come back to Travis Dow in a second. He has a little more to say about alchemy, but we did want to chime in here to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that he's already said. First of all, we want to say thank you, Travis, for yeah, you taking did, the time. <laughs> you did us a solid, You sir. did, you did. Yeah. So the first things I want to get at is Travis's point of view on this is obviously different from ours because we are uneducated woo-woos, <laughs> woo-woo experts. We, we muck around in the fantastical, we which do. he does not. He keeps it very academic. I think about it should be we muck about. We muck, we muck about. about in the fantastic. <laughs> exactly. No. We try and uh, give you an insight into the background of the factual, but uh, we are not afraid, at least in the part threes or our conclusions or whatever. The, the which will be parts, the next part. Uh, hopefully, yeah, unless we just get really just angry letters, which can happen. From the count. <laughs> From the count. But he keeps it. Academic. So when you go to the History of Alchemy podcast, 
what you will get is how it's viewed generally throughout history in a very sane, rational, again, again, middle of the road level. We will kind of expound and theorize to some people's delight and to others just hatefulness that what we think may have happened within reason. Again, he keeps it on the straight and narrow, and he tells you just very generally. It's like, obviously, he was a chemist and would be, at the time, considered an alchemist. Yes. What he said is really fascinating is that how the line is crossed between those two things, because chemistry is emerging from alchemy and they're related. You know, that's exactly. interesting to me. Because you know? at one point, remember, there was no chemistry. There was no science. It was a yeah. lot of superstition. So what he'll kind of get into in a little bit here is that the first people experimenting with chemistry, as it is known today, were considered alchemists. People with the gear in the tiny little cellar actually doing experiments, seeing what works with what. So when he looks at the count, he sees a guy who did dabble in that arena, actually had some talents, as people at the time will attest, he was a good chemist. He played a great violin, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he can compose a tune. But as far as being 300 years old, 500 years old, Travis's view, and probably the sane one, and the one you should go to, is that he was just a man who lived a very long life of the time. And within that, he did some remarkable things. And looked really good for his age. He looked really good for his age. This is where we go off the deep end. Is yeah. That, or things that we'll point out, more likely, is that, yes, he lived a very, very long age, just in the fact book here, for his time period, and any time period, really. But to have not appeared to have aged at all is something that no one can explain, which right. obviously seems to be well recorded. So again, Travis doesn't get into that, but he mentioned one thing here about he might be a comic today, a stand-up comedian, and a lot of people think the Count looks like Kevin Pollock. There are people that believe <laughs> yeah, yeah. that Kevin Pollock yeah. is the Count of St. Germain. <laughs> so I was going to hey. actually reach out to Kevin Pollock. I don't know if I know anybody that knows him. I think I probably do. Yeah. But I feel like it would take a long time to get in touch with him. And I feel like the bulk of what he would probably say is no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. But you know what? The Count was awesome and usual suspect. So I'll, oh, give, yes. I'll give him that. He, he was, was just a, a great character. They do uh, look yeah. a lot alike, though. No, I will say. Face. No, that's Same. the thing. Take a look at the two. Again. Look the, at the, the painting. Well, you know what I'm going to say? Yeah. When we post this, I'm going to go ahead and do a side-by-side. -side. I'll Photoshop that together. <laughs> oh, very nice. Maybe we can even do a little fake forensic matchup. We'll superimpose it. Yeah, not uh, <laughs> Kevin Pollock is definitely aging like a regular human being. Yeah. But the, the facial makeup. <laughs> or is it to make him look like he's aging? They have some uh, similar facial structure features, I would say. The same kind of template, as I call it, with different people. Right. Again, getting back to what Travis was saying is that there's a bit of a uh, Baron Munchausen aspect to him. Yes. And that you can't take those kind of things seriously, you know, him being 300 years old or 500 or advising Jesus, as he mentioned, the French mimic Milord Gower, which is what he called himself. Yes, that was the, the mime who had been doing impressions of the Count based on his exploits and had become quite a big deal and was performing this character. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes the developed. character becomes bigger than the real person or right. more well-known. Right. And so people started mixing up the exploits of the right. mime who was jesting with the real exploits of the Count, and understandably so, because the real exploits of the Count are unbelievable and in some cases comical. Yeah, right. And so it all blended together. And that brings me to a really good point that I wanted to make about the quote we used in part one, the yes. Voltaire quote, mm -hmm. which was, he's the man who knows everything and never dies. And never dies. Loosely, believe, yes, yeah, loosely, loosely I'm not sure that word for word. Right. Voltaire did say that, and most sources will say, 
if you look at all the websites and the blogs and everybody's talking about the Count of St. Germain, and even if you've never heard of him, and so far this multi-part series is boring you, I am telling you, there is a ton of stuff about this guy on the internet. Yeah, there yeah. are books. They've been written for hundreds of years about this situation. And so what I'm going to tell you right now is that most of those will say that Voltaire was in awe of the Count or that he was impressed with the Count, and that's why he said he is the man who knows everything yeah. and will never die. The truth is that was said as a jibe because— He was being sarcastic. He was being sarcastic <laughs> right. and making fun of the Count in a letter that was regarding politics to a friend. And that's when yeah. he's like, yeah, he's the guy who knows everything and will never die. He's like— Right, yeah, you, that's— you're, that, And you're a fool if you believe that. Exactly. So everyone needs to understand that. Voltaire was—even though we used it because I love it, it's a great quote, and yeah, Voltaire it said it, good. who has a cooler name than Voltaire? <laughs> right, which is the moniker. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. exactly. The point being that that quote was actually meant to be the jab— <laughs> it was yes, not meant was. to be a compliment. No. He was kind of mocking him, again, being very sarcastic. But my point and uh, how I view that, which kind of goes to what Travis will get into a little bit more here, Voltaire is from the age of enlightenment. I think precedes that the age of reason. So what you see in the late 1600s into the 1700s, which is the era we have now, is that people changing their philosophy We'd spoken about this before. It's like the age of mysticism of like, you throw grain on a shirt and rats appear magically. It's like, no, 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 the rats are just, they smelled the grain. <laughs> and yeah. So that's what happened. You didn't lock the room very well or they got in through the floor. So that magical world of thinking is going away. We are seeing philosophy and again, the humanists and all that kind of stuff going on with people's thinking in the scientific realm. So again, science is emerging. What Travis is saying is that you're getting a, a blend of the, the old world of alchemy and magic and, and the dark arts, blending into actual science and chemistry. Things happen for a reason. When you mix this together, it blows up. So that's from Voltaire's perspective, and it hasn't changed today. Now they just call you a pseudoscientist, I guess. Yeah. So there you go. But they're probably going to be calling us that. Well, except we're just pseudo. <laughs> well, we're, we're not pseudo even scientists. Report, I don't know what we call us. Pseudo-investigative yeah. reporters? No. Uh, folk tellers. There yeah. you go. Hey, you sent me a picture of your Blue Apron meal last night. Which one was that? Yeah, that was the pork chops and garlic piccata with scallion rice and spinach. It looked great. Excellent plating technique, too. Thank you very much. It tasted great as well. Well, seriously, no, it was impressive. And you always were a pretty good cook, I would say, but now you're on your way to becoming a real home chef, and there is a difference. You see, folks, if Scott can do it, anyone can make delicious gourmet meals at home with Blue Apron. Thanks a lot. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, it's not that hard because they give you step-by-step -step instructions and send you just the right amount of fresh, high-quality ingredients directly to your doorstep. And as we always say, when you start off with great ingredients, you end up with a great meal. That is so true. And to ensure that happens, Blue Apron has partnered with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. As a result, the seafood is sourced sustainably, the beef, chicken, and pork are responsibly raised, and the produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. Wow. Are you trying to one-up me with the dialogue there? <laughs> no, I'm just trying to tell people that they can feel good about where their food is coming from, as well as feel good because it tastes so delicious. Yeah, I think you're trying to one-up me. Well, one of the main <laughs> reasons my family loves it is that we never get bored with the choices, because you can let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you, or you can create your own menu from a variety of new recipes each week. And none of the recipes are repeated within a year. And I really love the fact that in about 40 minutes or less, I can have dinner on the table. 
Well, it all ties into Blue Apron's mission, which is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, including Scott. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Hi, I'm Kevin Ricotta, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. The other thing I want to say before we get back to the rest of Travis's interview is we wanted to talk a little bit about that encounter, which was very a very fascinating encounter. Yeah, he led off with that, and he mentioned a little bit about it, but it's actually a, a very good snippet of that reportage, shall we say, of that encounter with Madame von Georgie. Yes, Countess von Georgie, when she encountered it, when Travis was mentioning how, you know, what's your father in Venice? And he said, no, and you must be nearly 100 years old. And he said, that is not impossible. What went on to happen that Travis touched on a little bit is fascinating to Forrest and I, and this is where we veer away from science and talk about speculation a little bit. But Well, it, when, sh- it shows you an, an insight into his character. Yes, And right. what makes him tick, because that's another thing that we wanted to cover. And again, there's been some comments where people were like, well, what's he really like? I, yeah. I think they maybe not getting that, what kind of a person was this? Yeah, he could do all these things, but that's what everybody wants to know. What kind of a guy was he? Exactly. When you meet a celebrity, what do they say? Well, what was he like? Yeah, We're going to pick up here the part where Travis left off there. That is not impossible. And this is, by the way, from Isabel Cooper Oakley's book. Yes. Now, the the attribution, right. I I will, uh, just because I love saying the words here and really poor French. And I'm- I'm, Yes, because where she, where Oakley got it from. Yes, exactly. Now, this is from a chronicle of the time. And as far as I can gather, you can find it on the internet. In French. In French. Well, it is French. Well, we looked really hard for an English translation. There there doesn't seem to be. You'd have to be able to speak uh, old French, I think. De l'Eule de Booth. And here I can genuinely say, pardon my French, but it was written down by the widowed Countess von B. And it's the part of her name's omitted. So I'm wondering if she was being anonymous, but it or goes listed it, anonymously. Right. And it, but it goes to Travis's point. It's a secondhand, third hand, tertiary source of information we don't know. And we thought that translation meant eye of beef. Which well, goes for that's a literal, yeah. yeah. But when we L'Ile looked when we looked it up, it translated literally into the ox's eye or eye of ox. Or a small round window, which I think more is what it had to do. And because also the word apartment is in the title. Ah, right. So it, it feels more like maybe it was meant to imply that it was a look at it's exactly. life in Paris at this time. Absolutely. I think it was a glimpse in through a small window of the times. And that's what the collection seems to be. It's, it's a volume. I think there are several volumes of this thing. It sounds so interesting to me. I oh, would love yeah. to find an English translation of it, Because actually. it lets you in on what was going on in the day. You know, if you read history books and stuff, it's like, yeah, that's done from an academic's point of view. But a lot of times it's fun to read the personal journals and letters because because you, you really get a sense of what was happening at the time. I do want to get back to that letter. Picking up where Travis left off, I'll just recount right here, pun intended. That is not impossible. And then the Count recounted to Madame von Georgie a number of familiar little details which he had referenced in common to both, to their sojourn in the Venetian states. He offered, if she still doubted him, to bring back to her memory certain circumstances and remarks, which, no, no, interrupted the old ambassadress, I'm already convinced— for all that you are a most extraordinary man, a devil. The Count replied, For pity's sake, no such names. He appeared to be seized with a cramp-like trembling in every limb and left the room immediately. And then she says, I mean to get to know this peculiar man more intimately. 
So she was definitely intrigued. Yes, she was. And Travis already said she couldn't take her eyes off of him, which happens to him in a lot of places. There's something about him. There's a charisma, a dark charisma. Yeah. People are drawn to him for whatever reason. But the thing that interested Forrest and I about this particular statement for me is, why did he react that way to being called a devil? Now, there's two schools of thought that I have internally about that. Mm-hmm. The first more boring one is that he's super nervous about being branded some kind of witch or black magic and because that's not a good time to for people to think <laughs> no. that kind of thing about no. you. It often leads to execution. Well, or, as, as Travis or, will say, it's a dangerous time to be professing strange, dark skills. Exactly. And then maybe there's just that possibility. Don't call me that. But that wouldn't cause him to start shaking and freak out and leave the room. So... My opinion is, this is a tell. I mean, this is yeah. a tell, and I mean tell in the terms of like playing poker with people at a he table. He lost his poker face. He lost his poker <laughs> yeah. face because he's sensitive to the fact that he is unusual. And yeah. he can't explain why, but whatever is going on, there's something about whether he's immortal or living longer than everyone else. And we're going to talk about this a little bit tonight with our other interviewee, Jesse Desmond. But we're also going to hear about it from Isabel Cooper Oakley's book. But I feel like this particular moment, which is a small moment in Oakley's book, is very fascinating because it seems like he's a little bit worried about getting nailed down and being nailed down as something more than a normal human being. Right. If you take what she said, nowadays, if you call somebody a devil, it's kind of a bad thing. Back then, it's like, I would say being called a devil is that you are a very unusual character because all the rest of us God-fearing Christian people are not so extraordinary. Anybody outside of that classification, you could call a devil. It's like, well, he's a charming devil. You've heard right. that, that thing. So it's not necessarily bad. I, think, I don't think she meant that to accuse him of anything, but that was a trigger word for him. And my feeling is that if you take his other character bits that we have approached but not really gotten to the bottom of either yet, he is a man of the light. He sees himself as a force for good. And I think being labeled that, there's something in there, yes, that triggered something deep down of like him being unusual all his life, perhaps, and wanting to appear not as a devil, but more of an angel. All right, so before we go back to the last part of Travis's interview, you were going to talk just for a second about the Count's physical appearance. Do, well, we, you we know, have, going to the question of what was he like, what did he look like? Exactly. So in this account, we have a little bit of a physical description of St. Germain, and St. Germain is of medium height and elegant manners. His features are regular, his complexion brown, his hair black, his face mobile and full of genius. His carriage bears the impress and nobility common only to the great. The Count dresses simply, but with taste. His only luxury consists of a large number of diamonds, with which he is fairly covered. He wears them on every finger. They are set in his snuff boxes and his watches. One evening he appeared at court with shoe buckles, which Herr von Gontol, an expert on precious stones, estimated at 200,000 francs. So you had mentioned that earlier about the, yeah, the... Paris the, the, Hilton would have loved this guy. Uh, <laughs> Everything yeah. was bedazzled. Yeah, but he wasn't, he wasn't gaudy. You know, he was, uh, exactly. He's, that's so hot. The, you will, yeah, the, to the use the shoes, phrase that's the, been yeah. dead for five years. <laughs> well, he also seemed to have found a beauty lotion which kept women looking young for 25 years or more. So they probably would have dug that as well. And yeah. can you imagine what a trillionaire he would be if he had that now? It'll keep I it preserved. It. Yeah, look, look 25 <laughs> at, at 55. So now getting back to Travis... He's going to tell us a little bit more about what alchemy is and the history of it and how he feels about it. And how the Count was using it as well. Alchemy is already hard to define by itself because it has a 1,400-year history and was many things to many different people. But to narrow it down, though, by the time of Count de Saint-Germain, 
alchemy was well past its golden age. Modern atomic theory and our modern understanding of what we call chemistry started to exist in his lifetime. I say that with a little caveat here and there, but, but let me explain. Alchemy goes way back. The parts that make it interesting for Saint Germain are really alchemy's mysterious and murky beginnings in Ptolemaic Alexandria. And alchemy grew out of the same environment as Hermeticism, Gnosticism, quite a bit of Jewish mysticism, and divination like astrology and, and all of that. And alchemy, like mathematics, if you think of the Neo-Pythagoreans with their mystic cults, it's that. So the philosophy or ideas behind alchemy are deeply embedded in this, in its roots. Okay, now how much further down the rabbit hole do you guys want to go? Because Let's just say that alchemy always also had its scientific roots there as well. Much of chemical equipment found in modern labs were first used to separate and ferment and distill and coagulate who knows what throughout the centuries to try and get the philosopher's stone. But real advances were made along the way. Cheaper jewelry, for instance, but also synthetic dyes, leather tanning, improvements, improvements in glass and control systems, like thermostats for furnaces, like as in automation, <laughs> and even better thermometers and that kind of thing, because they played with mercury a lot. The process of alchemy was tedious, so it just brought a lot of innovation with it. But one keeps getting these mystic revivals too. A big one in the Renaissance. Alchemy came back with a vengeance, but so did Kabbalah, astrology, and all of those other sort of mystic ideas also. Magic, like occult. The backlash for this was many-fold. Some thought alchemy was real and legit, period. Mimicking, you know, a natural process in the earth. Others thought alchemy was real and legit, but alchemists had no clue how to do it. Others thought alchemy was real, but came from evil forces. Others thought the whole idea was nonsense, and all alchemists are, at their core, quacks or frauds or just making stuff up. This last group started to really gain momentum. The golden age of alchemy was more like the turn of the 17th century, the early 1600s, the beginning of the century, really. By St. Germain's time, a century to a century and a half later, the backlash was pretty severe. Laws were in place against alchemists, even the penalty of death, and one had to be very careful in how one marketed oneself. And in fact, Saint Germain is a great example of this. He was playing with fire with his reputation and often relying on very powerful friends to not get him into too much trouble. But at the end of his life, he was absolutely an alchemist, also a chemist. Perhaps chemist spelt with a Y, how they did in that century, but chemist was the last term in English and German for alchemists. And it was also a new name for a certain type of natural philosopher, one who was doing experience more for experiment's sake. People writing down ideas of the conservation of mass and energy. This is all in St. Germain's lifetime already. Remember, the Count of St. Germain lived after Isaac Newton, so knowledge of the laws of thermodynamics were already spreading. And here's some guy creating gemstones for the Fürst of Hesse-Kassel. Early chemists were terrified of being lumped in with alchemists. Soon after St. Germain's death, we get the work called The Atomic Theory, written by John Bolton, and that's my final nail in the coffin of alchemy, really. But in truth, alchemy was in steep decline for a century before that, and alchemy and chemistry have coexisted by that time for a century. 
with St. Germain's life right in the middle of that century. So he was an old school alchemist, elixir of life, making glass, gemstones for a patron. But if one looked at his lab and maybe less at his books, one might think, oh, this is a fairly, well, early modern glass jewelry manufacturer, some metalworks with a glass bead shop in the back, that kind of thing. A chemist's lab, really. Something like that of face value. He also experimented with dyes. Not science for science sake, but certainly R&D in a proper chemist's lab for production materials of sales goods in a very modern sense. Not too different from a chemist working in a pharmaceutical company today, perhaps. Of course, he or his patron was marketing this as something more. <laughs> and that's more alchemy than chemistry. His glass gems were sold as something like transmutated emeralds or who knows what. And that's essentially fraud. But since the term scientist didn't exist in our modern sense at that time at all, it was less of a science versus mysticism debate generally. And many of his experiments were scientific in a way, even if they were not published in peer-reviewed journals. So given his time period, alchemist implies more of a charlatan. That was the majority view of his time, I'd say. Whereas chemist, even with a Y, might in some circles mean someone who really knew his trade or literally just another word for alchemist. It depends on the source and the mood. Saint Germain actually maybe knew some knowledge that others sought. Even if he was certainly not a scientist, he still may have had many of the same traits we identify with scientists, like showing a curiosity in, in a chemistry lab environment and seeing what happens when, when you mix this substance with that substance and boil it for a few days. So the line between chemistry and alchemy is blurry, especially in the 18th century. That's what I'm trying to say. People on both sides of the chemist-alchemist argument would have both valid points. Again, this is a rough question because the definition of alchemy along with the public opinion of alchemy, changed dramatically over time and place from extremely respectful, knowledgeable people all the way to cheap frauds on the street. It's my opinion that St. Germain was very well aware of this and played his hand well when it came to reputation, often walking a very dangerous and fine line. At its core, alchemy is trying to create one material from another. Physicists have since in our century now, or in the 20th century, I should say, have created gold atoms using lead atom isotopes, using particle accelerators. So modern science does have, sure, there's room for alchemy after all. Historically, it grew out of theoretical philosophy. It's cousins to things like sympathetic magic and based on hermetic philosophy, other things that have the same evolution are things like mathematics, physics, astronomy, medicine. So history of science does not go in a straight line, as I like to say. Alchemy is at the crossroads of both reason and supernatural beliefs. It's a source for endless fascination, so be careful. Before you know it, you'll find yourself in a dark, damp, underground alchemist lab in Prague trying to figure out how the furnace was used your bookshelf filled with weird theories from Renaissance Italy or books long out of print because you found a passing reference to an alchemist lab being set up in the Vatican or Elizabeth I's bedchambers or staying up all night trying to figure out who Sendivogius was. It's a slippery slope, okay? You have been warned and send help.
The tower where his last lab was set up still stands in the Luisenlund Summer Palace near the Danish border. In any case, many already called foul in his lifetime. But who doesn't love the tale, even then, of a real-life alchemist? I know I do. My shows like The History of Alchemy and more are on podcastnick.com. I'm Travis Dow. Thanks a lot. Okay, now that we've just been completely upstaged by these smart people. <laughs> well, again, that's somebody who knows what they're talking about. Yeah, because he's actually read a lot of books. His show is really great. By the way, we encourage our listeners to go check it out if you're looking for something to do when we're down, that's for sure. And even when we're not. They have a huge collection of alchemists throughout history that they've already covered. So it's yeah. a great resource. Again, if any of this kind of fascinates you, you want to know more about it, What's up with all this stuff? And again, that's the exciting part of scientific history in a way, as, as you just said. Yeah. So you can find his show at podcastnick.com and his other shows, which he's got several with his co-host Pete Coleman. And you can also find more shows on history if you're interested at darkmyths.org, where we're in a collective there. You'll find us there too, but you already know where we are. All right. So one of the things that Travis says in that last bit is he talks about how he thinks, again, that the Count had probably a pretty normal lifespan, and this is where our two paths in the woods separate a little bit, and that's why we do our show and he does his. But <laughs> well, yeah, <he's laughs> making that distinction, yeah. Yes, with much respect for him. If you want to know what's accepted, <laughs> we're going to tell you, we're going to get into areas which may not be as accepted. Yeah. But to us, that's kind of fun. I think he likes checking that out as well, but he can't go on the record of like even introducing that yeah. and being that careless. Right. Where we can. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or try to. Okay, so now it's time to talk to our other interviewee, who is Jessie Desmond. We mentioned her in part one because we found her blog, which we also mentioned earlier tonight, Finding Count St. Germain blogspot.com, and Saint is abbreviated there, so it's just ST. But I had reached out to her because she had compiled a lot of information and been working on this for some time, and I asked her if she wanted to do an interview, and she did. So just a few caveats about the interview. The first thing is that we did it over Skype, and there's a little bit of digital interference on her end, which could be, I'm not saying that's her connection. It could be hers or mine. The reason I sound better is because I recorded directly into our studio mics. Mine might have sounded just as bad. I'm not sure what the problem was. I don't love Skype right now. We're looking for another solution <laughs> oh. there. The range of it's cool, but it seems to always have artifacts and problems. The same thing happened when we interviewed Professor Abbott in Australia. So we're looking for something better there, but you'll still be able to understand her. Just forgive the little dropouts here and there. Sarah, our editor, God bless her, did the absolute best job she could with cleaning all that stuff up. The other thing I want to tell you is that Jesse has a chocolate lab named Buster. Now, normally you wouldn't need to know that, but <laughs> he is milling about in the background while we're talking, and he goes outside and inside and outside. But here's the other thing about Jesse: She lives in Fairbanks, Alaska, born and raised there, and there were whiteout conditions there when I spoke to her a couple of days ago. So it wasn't like she could lock poor Buster outside. So he's coming in and out through the dog door a little bit. And I think at one point you'll hear him chewing on a bone or something. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. especially if you're listening on headphones, I know I did. But that's what Buster needed to do to keep from being a popsicle that day. So just put that aside. Check out this interview. There's a lot of good information from Jesse. We really enjoyed talking to her. So I'm going to kick it over to her now. We're going to let her introduce herself. Well, my name is Jesse Desmond, and I've been researching the Count St. Germain since 1998. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Thomas Sleeman, because I picked up his book called Strange But True, which came out in 98. Chapter one, this first story in that book was all about the Count, and that's really what got me started on my weird obsession about the Count, and it's just rolled on from there. 
And now it's gotten to the point where I have a history degree, I have an art degree, and now I'm going through and I'm writing a book about the count. So I'm very excited about it. <laughs> that is so cool. So how long have you been working on the book? I didn't know I really wanted to write a book about the count until the summer of 2011 when I was getting my second degree, which was history. I was writing a 25-page paper for a special topics class. It was all about the count and his influence on 18th century France. And after I wrote that paper, I got busy with my history thesis. <laughs> and I decided that I was going to, at some point, write a book. So I started collecting a lot of stuff and a lot of primary sources. So now I'm out and I'm desperately looking for more primary sources. When I look at your timeline on your blog, which is great, and we told our listeners about it in the last part, actually, findingcountstgermain.blogspot.com. You have some stuff that's really early. And I was wondering, where did you come across this information in the 600 range when he claims to have received the staff of Moses? Is that a story that he personally related? Or do you know where that came from, that information? All that early stuff is based on things that he's claimed to have witnessed or where he's been and that sort of thing. It's so awkward talking about it because essentially it's just hearsay and you just kind of have to either take his word for it or not. I have a little divider on the timeline for that stuff yes. because it's so far out there. <laughs> That's what the divider is. This is above yeah. this line is really far out. <laughs> a lot of that stuff comes out of memoirs. Do you have any insight on whether or not he was operating as some kind of rogue that had no marching orders or that he was under marching orders, but he had to be completely independent of the crown? I don't think he was a spy, but he was a diplomat for King Louis XV. And that started in 1749. But before then, he spent a lot of time in England. He's a composer yes, and a musician. So he spent a lot of time doing shows in England. They considered him to be a rival of Handel, which is kind of interesting just in itself. He didn't just work for France. One of his students was Catherine the Great's mother. So he has ties to Russia, pretty much everyone. <laughs> that was some kind of noble family or royal family. He just seemed to be everywhere. I didn't realize he had students. Was he a student of music or? No, alchemy. Oh, of alchemy. He did have rooms at... Chateau me... de Chambord. That... Yeah, thank yes. you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> anyway, he had some rooms there that the king allotted him, and he would teach alchemy to people. Okay, so he wasn't just doing it by himself. He was sharing that information with others. Right. All right, so where are we with the course King Arthur, History and Legend over at The Great Courses Plus? Well, to set the stage before this Arthur character comes on the scene, in 410 AD, the Goths sack Rome. So the Roman military, which was keeping things orderly in Britain, go back to deal with that mess, which now meant that all the Picts from Scotland and the Scots from Ireland, well, they start raiding and massacring the Romanized Britons. And things were looking pretty bad. So around 449, a local warlord named Fortigern had the idea to pay some Saxon mercenaries to fight off these invading tribes. Which worked at first, but then they themselves discovered that Britain was ripe for the picking. Right, and those mercenaries were led by the legendary brothers Hengist and Horsa, whom I'll bet most people don't know Thomas Jefferson actually wanted to put on the great seal of the United States. Well, Jefferson knew that if Hengist and Horsa hadn't conquered, he and all the rest of us might be speaking something like Welsh instead of English. It just shows you how certain events can change the course of history for the whole planet. And if you like knowing about this kind of stuff, there's so much more over at The Great Courses Plus.
With over 8,000 courses to choose from and new ones being added all the time, you'll never run out of new things and skills to learn. And it's not just history and science. They have courses on the art of investing, negotiating the best deal, to staying fit as you age, and reducing stress all taught by some of the best experts in the field. And watching these courses couldn't be more convenient. You can start streaming on one device, like a smartphone, laptop, tablet, or TV, and pick up where you left off on another. You can also watch as many as you want, whenever you want. If you sign up for The Great Courses Plus right now, you can get the first full month free to check them out. Just sign up through our special URL to start watching, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com legends. Start binging on something that's going to make you a better you. Get your free month of unlimited viewing by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hi, my name is Mike Waterhouse. And now back to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about what Jesse was just talking about in terms of him being a diplomat versus a spy. It's pretty fascinating stuff. And we're adding all this to the pot of him already being involved in so many other things, melting gems, painting, the music, all the stuff that we've already mentioned. And we can take from Isabel Cooper Oakley's book, actually, on chapter five, political work, at the end of the second paragraph there, she says, from 1749, the king employed him on diplomatic missions, and he acquitted himself honorably in them. And this is interesting because actually prior to that, that was 1749, in 1745, he was actually arrested. To do with the Jacobite Rebellion. Right. And that's what's fascinating is I had heard of the Jacobite Rebellion, but I didn't really know what it was. It was the Jacobite Rising of 1745, this is from Wikipedia, was the attempt by Charles Edward Stuart to regain the British throne for the exiled House of Stuart. The rising occurred during the War of the Austrian Succession when most of the British army was on the European continent. So what's happening is Germain was not involved with that uprising, but there was apparently, according to Oakley's book, there was a gentleman who was jealous of Germain's relationship with an unnamed woman. Right, which he was not involved with because, of course, all the descriptions said essentially he was celibate. Yes, yeah. he was celibate. He didn't eat much. He Although, was celibate. He <laughs> had a little passage. gruel every now and then. Right, no, there was... <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did eat gruel. He drank tinted colored water or some yes. kind of elixir from time to time. I think it's possible he invented Kool-Aid. He, he, made, well, he did a lot more sugar <laughs> and a lot more red number five, yeah. which he was probably working on. Yeah. But in the, the podcast- would die. Right. <laughs> there's one funny quote that uh, actually Travis J. Dow and Pete Coleman mentioned in their coverage of The Count. He seems to have intercourse with ghosts at his will. Yes. That does not mean, we may have mentioned this in part one, I can't remember. I don't but think we, we talked about it off the air. I yes. don't think we mentioned it on the air. What he meant was just, he had an exchange, a verbal exchange. Yes. There's it, nothing sordid going on. It used on to here. mean conversation. Yeah, until it, it meant something else. Yeah. He never married. No one ever saw him with a wife or a spouse or a, uh, a lady friend. Right. So he kept out of that business, although but, he was very gentlemanly. Yes, and extremely charming and charismatic. Yes. So you could see where ladies would be drawn to him, especially if their husbands were duds. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was what, a lot why of you guttery going on. Why don't you on. write me a song? Yeah, why don't you... <laughs> Exactly. Make me some gems. <laughs> so here's yeah. the thing. This gentleman, whoever he was, put this letter, slipped it into his pocket. It's a plant. It's, it's like from yes. there, I can't remember. I feel like it was an Eddie Murphy movie or whatever. When they plant something, he goes, man, that's such an obvious plant. You should water it. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Like, they put this right. letter in the pocket and he says, this man is... His, from Bronnie Prince Charlie saying, thanks for the work, dude. Yes. Uh, hey, keep it up. So, Bronnie Prince yeah. Charlie being the man at the center of the yeah. Jacobite uprising. Yeah. So... 
essentially what happened is he's been framed. This letter makes it look like St. Germain is conspiring with the enemy. Yes, exactly. Again, it was a return uh, to Catholic rule. Yes. And he didn't have anything to do with it, but it did not look good to the king at the time. He doesn't like anything sniffing of an uprising or anything to do with that because, of course, that means his livelihood and his life. Yes. So during this time when he, I guess, is persona non grata, he actually travels because he never stays in one place very long. Well, you got to keep moving when you're immortal. Yes, and a wanted man, <laughs> right. even if it's briefly. I guess he went to India where apparently he learned how to melt diamonds. <laughs> yeah, well, the, <laughs> and he, he learned it from General Clive, who, you, can you tell us a little bit about General Clive? Well, not really, but <laughs> no, he was, he's actually known in esoteric circles as having been one to have traveled to India and learned the secrets of the great yogis there. Which, and yogi just means teacher. Okay. But one thing I can tell you is that this setup here, this scenario, traveling to England, disappearing for years at a time to learn the great secrets, that is attributed to all of the great esoteric teachers. Yes. And some on the alternative histories, possibly even Jesus. Right. Having disappeared for a while, traveled to India to learn the secrets there, you come back, and then you do your the great work. Well, actually, the great work is referring to alchemy. But yeah, the great works is as far as like helping humanity with your knowledge. So Dr. Alexander Cannon, General Clive, all these people, you got to go to India. You got to learn the secrets You got to make your pilgrimage. You got to take your journey. Exactly. And, yeah. and so, yeah, you learn these things because they're not all in the same place. The other big place, you got to go to the Himalayas. All right, take a listen to this letter from Oakley's book that was written by the Count to the Graf von Lamberg about his time in India. I am indebted for my knowledge of melting jewels to my second journey to India in the year 1755 with General Clive, who was I under Vice Admiral Watson. On my first journey, I had only a very faint idea of the wonderful secret of which we are speaking. All the attempts that I made in Vienna, Paris, and London are worthless as experiments. The great work was interrupted at the time I have mentioned. So the next thing we need to talk about, and Jesse's going to make a reference to this in a few minutes in a later part of her interview, but is the Seven Years' War. Yeah, a massive conflict that I'm sure a lot of European students learn about. It was always, of course, mentioned here in America, but it has a lot to do with America's future yes. at the time of the revolution. And this was a massive conflict and fought by all the great powers, the European powers of the time. Right. Essentially, it was a battle between the kingdom of Great Britain and the kingdom of France Those are for the two superiority. Major, exactly. Those are the two major sides. And then they had their teams. <laughs> your teams. The conflict extends from 1754 to 1763, but the main seven years part is where the major conflict happened, 1756 to 1763. So, right. By the way, the Seven Years' War actually was nine years. <laughs> was there was fighting years. for nine years. It but the main up, conflict right. was... So in 1755, St. Germain is in India... It gets things patched back up, I guess. Yeah. Gets back into the good graces of Louis XV and essentially becomes a diplomat and starts winding up kind of all over the place backstage, making all kinds of strange offerings of peace that people that are talking to him aren't really sure if it's safe to talk to him, if he's got the authority to negotiate. Right. And there's some implication that Louis was not 
necessarily giving him official marching order. It was more like almost like a special forces kind of thing where he's if he gets caught, he's disavowed unless he makes some kind of progress. But right by the secretary, disavowed knowledge by the secretary. But Louis XV is widely credited with starting this kind of secret diplomacy tactic. Yes. Where he's sending ministers out. Today, you'd call it shuttle diplomacy, where nobody wants to meet directly because they hate each other. Nothing's going to get done in a room of their diplomats. So people go back and forth like, hey, this guy said this. And what do you think about that? Are you cool with that? Okay, right. Let's go to this other guy. Hey, they're offering this. What do you say? I'm so, not authorized to speak about it, but... Yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's the thing. We mentioned this in part one. That's why having a lot of uh, identities, names, titles, handy at your disposal, yes. papers of different origins, depending on where you are, comes in very handy during these days because you could immediately be called back to the Bastille or even something worse. Okay, so let's go back to Jesse here. The next question I asked her about was one of the things that we mentioned in part one, and I think we may have mentioned some in this part as well. There is a popular theory that the count actually died in 1784. So we're, we're fast forwarding here about 30 years, but we'll be coming back and forth on his life, believe me. Right. But, as we said in part one, though, it's the one point that everyone can look to as an official documentation of his death by the authorities of the town. Right. And we have talked about it a little bit before. That is when he went to stay with Carl or Prince Charles of yeah. Hesse Cassel. Hesse, Hesse Castle. Castle. Yeah. That's how Travis says it. He actually speaks German. So right. He was arrived there and had been there a few years and then he became sickly. Five years. Yeah. He, yeah. That, and that's when he told his, one of his closest and good friends, the Prince Charles, that's when he told him he was 88 years old when he arrived in town. And I think he was there about five years working in the abandoned factory that uh, the prince had purchased for him to conduct his experiments because he he wowed him with yes. some things he had showed them, of course, dyes and fabrics. That's a little bit of the theory of why he caught a cold or got sickly is that he was in a damp basement. He was living there. So he's in the offices. Imagine if you go into a factory or giant warehouse, there's always a little office section. Yeah, it's not very glamorous. No, it's not. Again, that points to him not needing a whole lot of fanciness, glamour. I'm sure it was not quite the digs of the Chateau de Chambord. But he's doing experiments. He's actually working. So he was there for about five years, keeping quiet. And then while Prince Charles is out of town, he croaks. Yes, he does. And what's interesting about this is that he was buried, supposedly, at the church at Eckenford, right? Yeah, and there's actually an official burial plot at the Nikolai Church in Eckenford. So he was buried in a private grave. So he died on February 27th. 1784. And supposedly. On <laughs> well, that's when... That's or as some of my friends in the South yeah. will say, so, just to be funny, supposedly. <laughs> anyway, it was documented on April 3rd that same year, the mayor and the city council of Eckford, Florida, issued an official proclamation. So here it is. It's on the books. It's official. He's got a burial plot. People were paid to bury him and collect his things. And that is when they go through his things that he left behind. Yeah. I, you know what? I actually talked to Jesse about that. So I have this book actually right in front of me, Count St. Germain by Jean Overton Fuller. Yes. And she actually has a list of everything that they found when they cleaned out his room. Yes, I've seen that list. You go through and you're like, okay, well, this could be someone's suitcase of stuff. Right. But it doesn't have anything listed musically. There aren't any chemicals or chemical sets or journals or anything that's really personal. I think the most personal thing is a male grooming kit. 
All right. You know, what's interesting about this to me is when Jesse talks about how these possessions, it seems just like a suitcase, like an overnight bag almost. Well, sounds to me like the suitcase left behind supposedly by the <laughs> Summerton man. It, it does. Just, it's very it's just, similar. It's on traveling bits. He didn't really have a real permanent home. So it's not like they searched his house somewhere. Yeah. He was always traveling. He was always living somewhere on the graces of others that, you know, he paid for his way. It's certainly documented that he gave people money. He wasn't a bad guest. You know what's just, funny you know, that I'm thinking about it now? There's always a spooky suitcase and there's almost always a razor. Because well, it's shave. Like, <laughs> no, but remember the Mary Celeste yeah. too. The razor was on a, you know, the bags were undisturbed. Oh, you know, certainly, it's the, yes. It's just it's. Of course, that's going to happen. Everyone has stuff. People that disappear have stuff. People that die have stuff. Yeah. But there's always something creepy about it. You know. You're like, oh, oh, here's his stuff. <laughs> you know, when I think of, I get sad even when my son is like at school or away yeah. for an overnight oh, or something. Or I go in the room or like there's a little sock on the couch. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, so you can imagine how this feels. Yeah. It's a direct legacy and a memory of the actual person and the mundane and prosaic bits of life that we all need. But this was too mundane, right? What, I would say it's too mundane. Oh, well, well I, should, I mean, you know, for yes, him. In your point, yes. I mean, we know you can speculate all you want about how long he lived and we're going to do that plenty. Right. The immortality, the possibility of him being centuries old. But it's proven that for a time, the man was a composer, he was an alchemist, people knew him, he yes. was a diplomat, he was a very sophisticated man, yeah. and here in these possessions, nothing is there, which either means he had more possessions somewhere else, or it got cleaned out, kind of like Marilyn Monroe's house <laughs> no, when, that's they, right. when she died. There was nothing here. Yeah. yeah. Or... Maybe he was destitute, but no, he's not destitute. He's working in the factory, so... You're approaching a very interesting point here, as yeah. far as now we're in the world of the detectives, because so often, as happens with a set of clues left behind, sometimes the most interesting things are what's not there. Do you have that list in front of you? Of what I do, they, yeah. This is his possessions, please? Right, and this is taken from Gene Fuller Overton's book. It was an official document made by the officials of the town there, Altona Schleswig. They got to know what you left behind and use some of that to pay for the civic services that he enjoyed upon his death. Pretty mundane, day-to-day -day list of knickknacks here, travels, sundries, and what we have left is a packet of paid and receipted bills and quittances, which just means he's got receipts that he paid bills. There's, there's no outstanding bills, so he paid his debts. He's not a deadbeat. <laughs> so they're basically saying, like, you're paid in full, you're good, we're clear to this debt. Credit so, card companies, what you know, that's what they call people who pay off their bill every month. They call yeah. them deadbeats. Yeah, because they're, they're not making any yeah. money off So he would have been, if he'd had, like, a visa <laughs> or something, he would have been a deadbeat. If they charged, uh, you know, 30% interest back then. That's a boring uh, interjection on that Yeah, well, no, no worries. It's all <laughs> It all ties in from now to the past. As far as cash goes, he had 82 Reichstallers, 13 shillings, that was the cash that he had left over, 29 various groups of items of clothing, including gloves, stockings, trousers, shirts, 14 linen shirts, and then eight groups of other types of items. So these are the things, like you said, razors, buckles, toothbrushes, sunglasses, combs, summer 10 man items. I was curious about the sunglasses because that yeah. would be very fashionable. Do you remember they had sunglasses back then? Yeah. You know, I never I, thought about when sunglasses came around. I have no idea. I never um, thought about it. They but had I, tinted if, glass. I mean, I, if, it, this, if this, <laughs> this guy wasn't cool enough, he's got yeah. like a pair of Wayfarers on or whatever. You know what? Not to foreshadow <laughs> anything, but what's, that's what I was going to say. He probably had some uh, Ray-Ban uh, aviators. Yeah. Very cool look at the time. Yeah. Remember when the movie came out, uh, Dracula, starring Gary Oldman? Yes. One scene in the movie, and I actually looked this up at the time, or it was a, like a blur because he was wearing sunglasses. And I thought like, I don't know. That seems apocryphal. You know, very lost boys. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's very 
it seemed like an anachronism. And, yeah. But I looked it up, and they did have colored glass for people as kind of sunglasses, but only the very rich had them, or you had to have connections. You know, you knew, you knew an optometrist back then. Yes. So or you had to know Count von Rayban. <laughs> right, very nice. Yeah. Uh, I think he's the Prince of Luxottica now. Yeah. So what happened, though, is that you were very fashionable. <laughs> it's a fashion statement to have sunglasses, because not everybody had them. Certainly people had reading glasses and glasses that could magnify. That's one of the strange, everyday, mundane items that a little room is left with. Again, what we're talking about is what's not left there that he was often seen with. So there were no diamonds, there's no jewels or gold or any kind of precious metals or gemstones. More importantly, maybe, is that there's no cultural items for all of his travels. He doesn't have his favorite violin there. He was a maestro on the violin. It'd be weird. It's somebody like you always seen playing a guitar like Jim. Yeah. When he walked out of the desert, his guitar was left there in the VW Bob. Forrest is referring to Jim Sullivan, the patron saints of Astonishing Legends. <laughs> Astonishing Legends. Yeah. What was weird there is that he did leave his guitar. And, oh, Jim would never leave his guitar. Even if he was going on a hike, he'd take it and play it with him. Yeah. So these are the strange things. There's no letters, no correspondence. That leads to two camps. Either he gave it away or something happened to it before he actually died. Or it's very likely he just left behind things that were replaceable. Doesn't Jesse have something to say about that? That she does. What do you think about that? Well, he was seen the year after his supposed death at a Freemasons meeting, and he was seen a lot by a lot of people who knew him before his death. And then he just kind of faded into the world because he went somewhere. Right. So, supposedly dead, the very next year, turns up at a Freemason get-together. By the way, <laughs> I, I do want to indicate... Yeah that we were contacted by a Freemason who had said that he wanted to fill us in on some things and had some education about Rosicrucianism. And I had made an attempt to get back in touch with him and said, hey, we would love to talk to you and possibly even interview you. And I haven't heard from him. I'm We've not gonna... got, yeah, we haven't had a response by the time of this recording. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to out him by name on the show. But if you're out there, please contact us. You can email us at astonishinglegends at gmail.com. We well, know who you are. Well, maybe he's the count. Yes, maybe he is the count. We'll find out. But he was an expert on Rosicrucianism as well. So what I wanted to talk about just briefly here is another section from Isabel Cooper Oakley's book regarding that appearance in 1785, which is the year after he was supposedly dead and buried at Eckenford. The other thing I want to revisit was that Prince Charles, or Carl, his close friend, right. was not present at Hesse Castle when the Count was buried, when he died and when he was buried. He did not personally witness it. Right. And, and he's oh, also into mysticism. Yes, he was very much into mysticism and secret societies, and so that's why they shared a lot of common interests, as well as the Count showed him the jewels that he had manufactured, maybe, and that uh, the dyes and the fabrics, which were very impressive at the time. So that's kind of why they established a bond, and they became close friends. In my personal opinion, I'm not sure he told Prince Charles all the details. There may have been some lying by omission, as we say. Yes. But what we do know, and you can look at him being out of town in two different ways. Either if he's out of town and Prince Charles knows that he's going to like just hightail it and document a death there, it's good plausible deniability. And that like, I wasn't there. I, hey, everyone said he was dead. Yeah. Or it's a good time for the Count to just split and not tell his friend because he's out of town. Right. Or he would just have to be on vacation. So let's go back briefly to Oakley's book here. I want to yes. mention this little paragraph about his appearance in 1785. Quote, in modern Freemason literature, the effort is made to eliminate his name and even in some instances 
and this is referring to the Count, to assert that he had no real part in the Masonic movement of the last century and was regarded only as a charlatan by leading Masons. Careful research, however, into the Masonic archives proves this to be untrue. Indeed, the exact contrary can be shown, for Monsieur de Saint-Germain was one of the selected representatives of the French Masons at their great convention at Paris in 1785. As one account says, quoting, The Germans who distinguished themselves on this occasion were Bad, von Dahlberg, Forster, Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick, Baron de Gleichen, Russworm, von Volner, Lavater, Ludwig, Prince of Hesse, Roskampf, Stork, Thaden von Wachter, and the French were honorably represented by Saint Germain, Saint Martin, Touzet du Chanteau, Etilia, Mesmer, mm-hmm. you're going to hear about him in part three, Du Trosset, De Hercourt, and Cagliostro, who we're also going to talk about in part three. Uh-huh. But right there, it's clearly indicated that the Count was there. Well, here's a the good point. The year after he died. Yeah, and I want to re-emphasize this because uh, it's something that Jesse said you should take into account because people, again, one of the other theories is that he wasn't that old. He just had people being his imposter showing up. It's, it's like the person who shows up at the class reunion for high school and uh, fortunately maybe it was somebody that died or it's just like, who's that kid? I don't remember him being in school. Right. And he just assumes an identity and causes havoc and, and it's a big prank. Yeah. In this case, what Jesse had said is that these people knew this guy during his lifetime and his travels in France and England and Russia. So they knew him at the time. It wasn't like we're at a 20-year reunion and I don't remember this kid looking like that. He looked the same. So that's one thing to consider. So it would be harder to get away with that as an imposter, especially at something that sacred where it is a society that has its own rituals, if you're not part of that, you're not going to pass. You know what I'm saying? You're not going to know the secret handshake. That is very true. And you know what I forgot? I did want to mention earlier, we had already said how the Count also had been friends with Catherine the Great's mother. Yes. Whose name was Johanna Elizabeth of Holstein Gotorp. And Johanna Elizabeth was the daughter of Christian Auguste, Duke of Holstein Gotorp, and Albertina Frederica of Baden-Durlach. I just want to mention that the region that they were from was Schleswig. Yeah. And that area is going to come up again. We know that the Count was in that area. In fact, Prince Charles, Carl, his buddy, Prince Charles of Hesse Castle, was for a time the royal governor of the twin duchies of Schleswig-Holstein. So there's all a connection here. It makes sense that he would have known Catherine the Great's mother. Right. And also we have mentioned that Catherine the Great had met him at some point, albeit possibly briefly, and then saw him again well after he had supposedly died. I just wanted to put that on the record there. I know this is a lot to keep up with, but we're just trying to explain. We've already explained all the things that he could do and that lots of people knew him for real and that there's proof of his achievements. Now what we're starting to explain is that it is not really clear when or if he died. That's hard to nail down. But one thing that is clear just from all the people's memoirs and their correspondence and testimony at the time is that he was so interconnected with all these people. So again, And protected, like, like Travis said. It, he it, was Because yes. alchemy was a little bit dangerous at the time. He had people in high places right. who were legitimizing his research and his experiments and protecting him from danger. And it's something that Travis and Pete talk about in their own podcast about alchemy, is that if you were practicing this at the time, it's a really good idea 
to find a ruler that who also shared your same interests yes. in the esoteric, the mystical, and alchemy because you could be seen as a practitioner of the dark arts. Yeah. And that would, might apply yeah. to Rasputin. There's other things going on there. But something I also wanted to point out was that he was teaching alchemy and some of these basics, let's say, of chemistry of the time to people that were of a like mind. And so people that were kind of writing about him as being sketchy or just really uncertain about him, like uh, Lady Jemima York, who was like, I'm laughing at him, I'm laughing with him. I don't know what to believe about this guy, but he's really fascinating and I want to get to know him more, which again, the husbands may not be so on board with. Yes. But he was very fascinating. And so the people that kind of derided him didn't know him very well. And of course, that's not the people that he's going to take in and start teaching stuff to. So I wanted to point out here the students that he had at the suite of rooms that Louis XV had given him at, at, the, Chateau at the Chateau de Chambord. Uh-huh. And he put up a laboratory for him to keep trying out his experiments. And a group of students gathered there around the mystic. And the names are the Baron de Gleichen and Marquise de Urfa and the Princess of Anhalt Zerbst, the mother of Catherine II of Russia and Madame de Genlis. By the way, that princess title is another name for the woman I was just talking about. Exactly. So yeah, if it's a little confusing, it's it's extremely confusing because people- Joanna Elizabeth of Holstein-Gortup is also the princess consort of Anhalt Serbs. Right, because it depends at the time who you're married to, what title was given to you at a certain point in your life. So very confusing. It's kind of like you can have multiple titles. It's a lot like Samuel Jackson's wallet in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> right. <laughs> it depends on uh, what's uh, stamped on the, uh, yeah. on the outside of it. So the point is people who were worthy of his teachings and would not laugh at him and were of a like mind, he was teaching some of these secrets to, and one of them was the mother of Catherine II, which connects to a theory that the Count may have had something to do with deposing Catherine II's husband, who was a goofball, Peter III, and not very effective, and uh, partnering with the wrong people, shall we say, politically at the time. That's a very lurid story, by the way. I recommend checking that out further if you like this kind of a political intrigue, Game of Thrones kind of stuff. He is swept away, and then she's put into power. She reigns for quite a long time and fends off quite a number of challenges to the throne herself. But the Count is thought maybe he had something to do with that. Maybe he was the puppet master. You know, we were pretty lucky in that we had some great people come to us to volunteer and help with research. We were very lucky because we all know how unlucky a workplace can be when you get someone in there that's just not working out. Well, I know, and I hate to say it, but at many businesses these days, if they're not working out, you just kind of hope that they move on. That usually happens because people weren't screened well enough to begin with. Well, that doesn't have to happen because you can start off the new year by finding the right people with ZipRecruiter. To find good hires, you need to hit all the top job sites, and ZipRecruiter lets you post to more than 200 of them, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. And not only do you have to hit all the top job sites, you need to expand your search to any city or industry nationwide. Just post once with ZipRecruiter and watch your qualified candidates roll into their easy-to-use interface. Use the ZipRecruiter dashboard to quickly screen candidates and rate them. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office, so hiring the right person is fast and effective. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, Astonishing Legends listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com legends. Did you say ZipRecruiter.com legends? <laughs> I did, and I'll say it again. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com legends. The following is a public service announcement. 
Hey, Scott, did you ever do the ALS ice bucket challenge? No, but I'm still willing to dump a bucket of ice water over your head. <laughs> well, well, thanks. But did you know that the ALS ice bucket challenge raised $128 million, and it all started when a group of guys wanted to support their friend diagnosed with ALS? Huh. More than 17 million people participated, and it shows the power just a few people or even a single voice can have. Well, you know what? Everybody knows somebody who's battled cancer, or maybe you've even been affected by it yourself. We're going to tell you how your one voice can make a big difference to a specific group of people who've been diagnosed. That's right. Approximately 70,000 adolescents and young adults between the ages of 15 and 39 are diagnosed with cancer each year in the United States. Cancer is the leading cause of disease-related death for this demographic. When you're in this group, you kind of fall into a gap when it comes to cancer treatment, care, and recovery. Because if you think about it, most hospitals, treatment centers, and caregivers have more of a focus on children or the middle-aged and elderly. So 15 to 39-year-olds become underserved by medical programs and underrepresented by government action. But you can help Critical Mass, the Young Adult Cancer Alliance, be the voice and the support for people in this age group. Critical Mass is a community-powered advocacy organization on a mission to transform the care and treatment of adolescents and young adults impacted by cancer. For more than a decade, they've brought together a diverse group of stakeholders, from patients to providers, advocates to industry leaders, who've all seen firsthand the devastation cancer can cause in the life of a young person. So here's how you can help. Text the word CRITICAL to 82623. We need everyone to join us to make the biggest impact to transform the lives of adolescents and young adults with cancer. So tell your friends and family also to text CRITICAL to 82623. Once again, text the word CRITICAL, C-R-I-T-I-C-A-L, to 82623 to join the movement today. Message and data rates may apply. Learn more at criticalmass.org. Critical Mass. It's time to transform the care and treatment of adolescents and young adults impacted by cancer. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Rebecca McKinley, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so I want to come back to Jessie's timeline from her blog a little bit for The Count, which is a really good backbone for structure here. The next thing that we thought made sense to talk about was when the count sort of went off the radar for about 40 years or so from 1820 to 1860. And I did ask Jesse about that. By the 1860s, he's starting to come back to Europe. And I think what that is, anyone who knew him is probably dead at that point. Right. That's my only uh, thought on that is that he came back, he gave people enough time to like pass on so then he can be a part of things again. And Napoleon III, this is kind of interesting, he actually was so interested in Count St. Germain that he started a small group do research on him. And then the, they were stationed at Hotel de Ville. And after a while, the hotel caught on fire. As written, it says, a mysterious fire. So, Oh, um, okay. All the files are gone from that. Wow. Okay. There's a bunch of people, it seems like whenever a politician of some sort gets really interested into the count, something or someone comes through and all their information kind of goes away. Okay. Or they just die. Right. I was super fascinated by this little bit of information that Jesse shared. It's very interesting to me. Napoleon III, by the way, who I had to look up because there's all kinds of Napoleons, yeah. in, including Bonaparte. Yeah. Or, the most me. famous one. Yes. Not he, Jordan Bonaparte. Not Jordan Bonaparte. Yeah. 
who must be related. Uh, maybe. Somehow, who is our friend that has the nighttime podcast. Right. But Napoleon Third was a nephew of the Napoleon we all think of. Talking off the top of my head, I believe he was the first directly elected leader of France. Okay, well, you are talking off the top of your head, yeah. so if there's any kickback on Twitter, I'm just going <laughs> to no, reply with your Twitter handle. I won't, uh, I won't win that Jeopardy question. <laughs> no, he was a notable ruler of the time, had some progressive things, some things that people didn't like. So yet again, one but of the anyway, long line of Napoleons. Yes, and, and he took, in fact... Are you talking about the connection to the Hôtel de Ville? Yeah, well, I do want to talk about that. Yeah. I just want to quickly say that Napoleon III lived from 1808 to 1873, and as per what you were saying, he was the only president from 1848 to 52 of the French Second Republic. Right. And then as Napoleon III, the emperor from 1852 to 1870 of the Second French Empire. Well, he wanted to keep ruling, and it, it says, that was yeah, it not says right allowed. Here. So he staged a coup d'etat. Right. He was the first president of France to be elected by a direct popular vote. You made that was like a big deal. And then he had a coup d'etat afterwards. He was all nice at first. <laughs> well, he, I'm elected. Until and he like, didn't get his no, way. No, I get to keep doing it. Yeah. Well, like, he had he had a lot a of support. Putin thing there. Uh, <laughs> well, you, when you're in Here, that kind I of, present uh, President yeah. Medvedev, <laughs> right. who is going to stand behind me. Yeah. But you, he, you got your president, right? Yes. You can't yes. complain about that. No uh, offense, Putin. No, we don't want him after us. Yeah. That all ties into this history and the Hotel de Ville. It's not the Marriott in Paris. It's more of a city hall. It was established in 1357, long time ago, by the mayor, the provost of merchants, Etienne Marcel. Essentially, he was the mayor. And he bought what was the Maison aux Pillars, or the House of Pillars at the time, turned that into basically city hall because it was a grand building. So the history of it, being in that same exact spot, goes back a long ways. Well, it is a gorgeous, I mean, a yeah, phenomenally beautiful building. There's a picture of it on the Wikipedia page. It says, Hotel de Ville at night, and I'm, it's just stunning. It is stunning. I think that modern view of it, the Gothic view, came about in 1533 under King Francis I's order to give the city a city hall, which would be worthy of it, because Paris was the largest city of Europe and of Christendom at the time. So there was two architects that worked on it, and it was quite something. So anyway, this building's been around quite a long time. It's seen of also uh, quite a bit of tragedy because that was also the square where they used to do a lot of public executions. There was some uh, fisticuffs and some shooting going on there during the French Revolution days. In regards to the fire, too, that Jesse mentioned, the fire happened on January 18th, 1871, what happened was during the Franco-Prussian War, this is from Wikipedia, the building played a key role in several political events. And one of these things that happened was on January 18, 1871, crowds had gathered outside to protest against speculated surrender to the Prussians and were dispersed by soldiers firing from the building, who inflicted several casualties, to your point a minute ago. The Paris Commune chose the Hôtel de Ville as its headquarters, and as anti-commune troops approached the building, communards set fire to the Hôtel de Ville, destroying almost all extant public records from the French Revolutionary period, which is a tragedy. The blaze swallowed the building from the inside, leaving only an empty stone shell. And there's actually a picture of that on the Wikipedia page, too, mm, what yes. it looked like after the fire. The big difference between that and what it looks like now. But that is the fire that burned all the records that Napoleon III was having compiled regarding the Count of St. Germain. And the interesting thing about this is... Mm -hmm. It's not the first time we hear of the Hôtel de Ville and the Count of St. Germain. 
No. And that fire was devastating. It, was, it took 19 years to rebuild it. Yeah. So Well, that building yeah. is like the churches and the pillars of the earth. I don't know if you've read that, but it's, yeah. it's a great book. I highly recommend, if you're into historical fiction, Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. Yeah. Although I used to think it was Ken Follett, but it is Follett. Follett. Okay. It's Follett, apparently. Well, there you go. Who wrote spy novels. You wouldn't think you'd be writing historical fiction about medieval times, but that no, book is excellent. Yeah. You cannot put it down. Grand sweeping novels, but this yeah. is a grand place as well. Tons of history. When you look at it, it's spectacular. Yes. And I, by the way, yeah. I should have said why I mentioned the book. The book is about the building of a cathedral that takes place over oh, sure. several hundred years and lives and generations. Of course. Yeah. yeah. When they started these things, they knew that they wouldn't live to see them completed. But the hotel, I think there's some rooms to stay in. And it's, it's, but it's not an actual, like what we think of as a hotel today. Right. So basically, yeah, all the records are kept there. Just think of it as Paris's city hall. So why don't we talk a little bit about the first time the Hotel de Ville and the Count of Saint-Germain cross paths, theoretically. We have that section from Cooper Oakley's book. Yeah, right? and I believe I talked a little bit about this because it makes an argument to the Count not being a vagabond and bumming money and rooms and food off the great heads of Europe here throughout his lifetime. Cooper Oakley mentions this because it makes a point. This guy had money. Yes. Uh, set up for him since birth, perhaps. Right. And this particular little tidbit of information ties back to the primary theory, which is one of the main ones about his identity, if you believe that he might have been born in the late 1600s as the possible third son yeah. of Prince Ragozzi, who we mentioned in part one. Right of Transylvania. Well, all of legend and history, some parts could be true. Right. Some parts could not be. Some parts could be a little bit fabricated, but mostly true. You just never know. Yeah. But this is the story here then that we find in the old chronicles of the time from 1736. It talks about the will of the late Prince Franz Leopold Ragozzi. That would be the Count's supposed father. So what Ragozzi, the father, is doing here is setting his sons up, the two sons that were mentioned and the third that was not named. The other two are named. The third one is not named. They think that that might be the count. So it states there that Louis XIV had bought landed property for this Prince Ragozzi from the Polish Queen Maria. And the rents of those properties were to be invested by order of the King of France in the Hotel de Ville in Paris. So this chronicle states also that Louis XIV had bought landed property for this Prince Ragozzi from the Polish Queen Maria, and the rents coming from this property were to be invested by order of the King of France in the Hôtel de Ville in Paris. So there you see a financial setup. The rents from these lands from the Polish Queen were to go directly into the Hôtel de Ville. On behalf of... Of the of. king, direct order of the king. So you could tell that this guy, yeah, he wasn't real popular. The father wasn't real popular with the Austrians, the Catholic Austrians, but he was very popular with the king of France. Yes. Because that this, is a, that's a tremendous gift. Yes, and this rent was specifically part of the legacy that the prince was trying to leave for his two named sons and the one unnamed right. one. It's a, like a, a big savings bond. Yeah. It's an investment for the future so that this thing would keep generating money as long as the Hotel de Ville was still going which it was. And so it's a way of ensuring that his boys are going to be taken care of after he's gone, because he can see his demise coming up here very shortly. So coming full circle, what we're saying now is the fire that Jesse mentioned and the fire that was started in that conflict was a fire in a building that directly benefited the Count of St. Germain by the theory that he is the third missing son of Prince Ragozzi. Well, it's just an interesting, yeah. small world kind of thing. It's a, it's a line. You can draw a line through yeah. those events from his birth and him being taken care of as a child by some very high-ranking people who were to ensure that he was educated 
and that he had money and to an adult account. All right, so we're going to go back to Jesse now for an interesting discussion about some of the later sightings of the Count of St. Germain. And when I talk about later, I'm talking 20th century stuff that has cropped up that will kind of blow your mind a little bit. At least it does mine. So let's go to that. She is going to come back now and talk to us about when she talked to the author who we mentioned earlier, Thomas Sleeman, who has written a billion mysterious, wonderfully mysterious books, which you can find a lot of them on Amazon, about what one of the more recent sightings was. And you're going to hear a little buzzword at the end of this segment that if you're a fan of our show is going to be uh, about a group that you've heard of before. Because Thomas Sleeman was like the first person who got me interested in this, I've emailed him a couple times over the years, and now we're Twitter buddies. Uh, <laughs> and I asked him at one point, I said, when was the most recent sighting of the Count? And after he had published his book, he had heard that there had been a sighting of him at a political conference in Berlin in the late 1960s. Okay. I was looking up different types of political conferences that were somewhat of a big deal. And in 1966, there was a Bilderberg conference sure. in Hess. And so that's that's in Germany. Okay, if Ryan was around, I would want to do a record scratch sound effect here. <laughs> really? <laughs> but I think I'm going to leave it off because it, right. it's a cliche and it gets on people's nerves. But <laughs> yeah, Bilderberg, if you're a fan of our show, I'm going to guess that a, a large percentage of you know what the Bilderberg Group is. You conspiratorialists out there. Yeah. This is part of all that stuff that adds up to, why are we doing a show on the Count of St. Germain? Well, whatever. He lived a long time ago. Yeah. Now we are talking about the 1900s, and we're talking about one of the most compelling annual secret meetings that there is, especially for people who worry about hidden governments and hidden societies and that kind of thing. Well, it's been built up that way. And anytime that you don't tell people everything you're doing they get suspicious. If you tell them everything you're doing, they get suspicious. So Yeah, I mean, which is specifically the point of the Bilderberg Group is for these guys to be able to get together and not, not be have recorded. media cameras. Yes. yes, no interviews, no discussion of what they talked about. People can say whatever they want, but they follow this group of rules called the Chatham House Rules. Mm -hmm. And with the Chatham House Rules, they can't propose any measures. They don't take any votes. They don't come out endorsing anything. They just go in. They all talk candidly. And the original goal of the Bilderberg Group was to promote Atlanticism. This is from the Wikipedia page on it. A better understanding between the cultures of the United States and Western Europe to foster cooperation on political, economic, and defense issues. Yeah. Yeah, the first one was started, it went from May 29th to the 31st in 1954, it has about 120 to 150 people attending. What's kind of cool about it is that from each country, they try and bring someone to represent a conservative side and someone to represent a liberal side of thinking. Yes. Because the whole thing's meant to foster open discussion, free and open discussion of ideas and how to better promote Atlanticism and free and open markets and that kind of stuff. The thing is, the people that are there... And maybe world domination. Yeah, exactly. The people <laughs> that are there, it's yeah. like 120 to 150 people, according to Wikipedia. These are some of the most powerful people in the world. And I believe that recently, some of the attendees have extended to major financial players like Bill Gates and... And there's been rumors of other people attending. Yeah, they can be from the areas of industry and finance, academia, the media, although having worked in the media, I'm not sure why you'd want their opinion, but media influences so many people, you should include them. So these are all the movers and shakers, people who are tastemakers and influential uh, beings. 
But that's why it's called the Bilderberg Conference or the Bilderberg Group or the Bilderberg Meetings or Club, because it took place first at the Hotel de Bilderberg in Oosterbeek, Netherlands. Yes. And that's the picture of the building that you always see when you're talking about it. One of the most prominent members right now is actually Peter Thiel, who was born in Germany and Mm -hmm. is an advisor to Donald Trump. He's apparently worth around $3 billion and is a venture capitalist, among many other things. But this is one of the guys that's going to this thing. And we don't get to know whether it's him or anybody else, both sides of the spectrum, what people are talking about, a lot of people don't like that, whether it's good or bad and supposed to foster or whatever. If you're going in a room and you're having a private meeting, it's like, yeah. you can't come in our club. Yeah. Why and by the meeting? way, we also happen to control most of the world. So it, it, it freaks people out a little bit. But <laughs> well, exactly like the Masons. Yeah. Why are you all Masons? What's going on there? What are you talking about? Why can't I join? It's like, well, you can join. You just yeah. have to join. Well, I don't want to do that. Just tell me what you're doing. Well, they have that new yeah. slogan is to be one, ask one with the Masons. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Let's like, go up. Yeah. No, hey, look, I know that. quite a few of them. They're, they're sweet guys. Yeah. And they're like, hey, come to the lodge. So, you know. When you get powerful people together, there's going to be some conspiring going on to keep them powerful and rich. That's how they stay that way. So there will be some of that. But it's like any social group, any group setting, you're going to have some of that. And then you're going to have a lot of people who are just there for the fraternity of it and to discuss openly new ideas. Yes. So, again, we don't know. We're not invited. But back at the time, at the one that Jesse was saying that the count may have been seen at, the particular gathering, that was at the Hotel Nasser Hof Weisbaden. Uh-huh. And that hotel is only about 400 kilometers south of Eckenford, which is north of Hamburg, where Prince Charles of Hesse Castle lived, and supposedly the count died, and I'm doing air quotes, yeah. Chris Farley style, <laughs> right, yeah. died in 1784. Yeah. We're now talking about 1966. And you were like, oh, the guy's got to be dead. What are you talking about? He was there? I don't know. But you know what? We can't say, because nobody can say anything, because the only people, yeah. you're not even supposed to talk about the other people that were there, right. even if you do go. Yeah, you know, they usually have a few pictures of people walking into the hotel, but that's like... No, that's all you can get. And yeah. of course, uh, you can look at it with Google Earth. It's just a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to see secret plans. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to see anybody holding anything. But the most compelling thing leading off to this, again, I would say that after his death in Altona, that he shows up at this recorded as having attended this meeting, as being one of the French representatives for the Masonic for the, Lodge. For the Masonic Lodge. Yeah, at the, at the Grand Lodge meeting. Yeah. Now you could say like, well, it's all the Masons conspiring to keep this guy alive and maybe they just lied about it. Like, again, unless there's some grand conspiracy that has run for three, 400 years, and maybe there is, who knows, but unless that's happening, he just shows up to a meeting, he gets recorded as being there. At the time, it's not like everything is connected as it is now. I'm talking about the media and information. Yes. You know, computer-wise and all that. So... I don't think he that had that big of a fear that like, oh my gosh, I just said I was dead and now I'm being seen here and people are going to say something about it. I think nothing happened really. There wasn't a big stink about it, no. but he did show up. Okay, so we've got Bilderberg. We've got this Freemason get together from a long time ago yeah. when the Masons weren't quite as open as they are now. So then one has to wonder, was there any other secret group or society, possibly one a little bit more out there that he might've been a part of? Let's talk to Jesse about that right now. So in 2015, I was sent this email from Mr. R.W., and he asked me to keep everything abbreviated, so he's R.W. Okay. And he is the grandson of Mr. E., who was a writer and a storyteller, and he happened to be a member of the 1940s Bohemian Grove. If you don't know, it's like a secret boys club in California there. 
and a lot of political people and rich people and people of power go there and there's a lot of mysterious stuff that happens that no one really knows what's going on. <laughs> Weird rituals and bonfires and various other things. So anyway, R.W. said that his grandfather met up with a guy who he had the same look as Count St. Germain. And oh, he went by the name Marcus S. Garman. Okay. His grandfather fully believed that the man he had met at Bohemian Grove was Count St. Germain. And this comes out of his private journals. Out of the grandfather's private journals? Yes. So this was information that Mr. R.W. came across after his grandfather passed? Yes. Right. He wasn't necessarily betraying the confidence of the Bohemian Grove. It was information that his descendants found after he died. Right. It was in his private journals. Wow. At Bohemian Grove, Marcus S. Garman was there between 1942 to 1945. And a lot of the meetings at that point were about the Manhattan Project. He attended for three years? Yes. Okay. There's a meeting in September 1942 about the Manhattan Project. And then he was seen approximately in 1945. And that was also about the Manhattan Project. So the assumption is that he was there a couple more times in regards to meetings about the Manhattan Project. But that seems right up his alley because he was always working on stuff that was a little ahead of its time. He started creating synthetic silk out of flax. That was in 1769. And he was trying real hard to get it set up in France because at that point, France was like a major power. But he was ran out of France by Duke de Choiseul. Yeah, Choiseau. Yeah. yeah, I know who you're talking yes. about. Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, what happened with that was, just in a nutshell here, the Count tried to end the Seven Years' War three years early because he wanted to start up this early industrialization of textiles in France. So if you're up to speed on your European history, the first wave of industrialization was just kind of starting, and all of that was agricultural-based. He got ran out of France by the Duke, who, who he was, the Duke was the war marshal at the time, and he was just getting money because they were in war, you know, so he was like milking the bank at this point with money. So uh, the Count went to Venice and started setting up silk, but at that point, Venice wasn't exactly the best place to be to do that, so it didn't really take off. If he had done it in France, it would have started an earlier wave of industrialization. It, that would have been incredible. We would be like way ahead of ourselves at this point. Would you say that his attempts to end the Seven-Year War were at the behest of Louis XV or not? As a diplomat of the king. Right. And the papers, I mean, if anyone wants to look at that, the papers are called the Mitchell Papers. Oh, right. The Mitchell Papers. I remember reading about them. I believe you can find copies of the Mitchell Papers in a few different locations. I think they're published by themselves. And then in some of the St. Germain texts, there's copies of them and stuff like yes, that. Yes. Isabel Cooper Oakley published some of them in her book. I know there's a, a few because I read a yeah. whole lot about that. And a lot of the letters from uh, the Duke that were vitriolic towards the Count calling him a yeah. rascal. and <laughs> He really hated him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you talked about Baron Gleiken. Yes. Gleiken, Gleiken yes. earlier. And he was really into the Duke's wife. Oh. And they had started up some kind of little affair thing and makes you wonder if uh, 
the Duke had other issues going on and he just kind of took it out on the count. Okay, so now we've already mentioned the Bilderberg Group. Now we're talking about the Bohemian Grove. I think that supersedes the Bilderberg Group in terms of secrecy and clandestine operations. Yeah, I mean, it's smaller, but the list of members of the Bohemian Grove is, I mean... They're more people you know. Yeah. Or you've heard of. I'm looking here at William Taft, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Donald Rumsfeld... (laughs) Theodore Roosevelt. Ambrose Bierce. Ambrose Bierce. Ronald Reagan. Jack uh, London. Colin Powell. Richard Nixon. RFK. Herbert Hoover. Al Gore. Newt Gingrich. Henry Ford. Gerald Ford. Bing Crosby. Clint Eastwood. Dwight Eisenhower. Walter Cronkite. Joseph Coors. Calvin Coolidge. Richard Cooley. William Jefferson Clinton. Jimmy Carter. Dick Cheney. George Bush. Jeb Bush. And the other George Bush. Yeah. And that's just yeah. some of them. And Ambrose Bierce, so glad you mentioned him, one of my favorite authors who wrote a pivotal story, short story, called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is just unbelievable. Jacob's Ladder, the movie, couldn't exist without it, as well as a <laughs> right. lot of other, pretty much like 70% of every science fiction film or story well, you've ever read. <laughs> yeah, he's nearly as influential as Edgar Allan Poe, but maybe the name not quite as known, uh, yeah. because of course people have sacked Poe for all of, all he was worth as far as his ideas. Right. But Ambrose Bierce, if you'll get into that, had generated a lot of the thinking in uh, terms of the supernatural horror type novel and story. Yes. It's pretty nonpartisan. You get people from both camps. You That's get true. Uh, writers, thinkers, artists. I think the general point of the club is that it is a place for the rich and the powerful and the famous to get together more so, I think, to blow off steam. Unlike Bilderberg, which is very formal. That's a lot of finance talking there and, polit- and politics defense, going on. Yes. Basically, the nature of the North American and European, Western European at least, getting along with trade and uh, policy and all that kind of stuff. This is laid back. There's a reason that it's in Monte Rio, California, on the outskirts of San Francisco there in Northern California, is that it's a very relaxing, beautiful area. It's a campground setting. So much like the Bilderberg experience, you can get together and talk about ideas and Entertainment Tonight's not there in your face with a camera, wanting yeah, a quote, or you're true. not taken out of context. So it's a place where somebody can go there and maybe espouse an idea that might be contrary to what the rest of the population and maybe your own party believes you should be saying and not get vilified for it, which of course we know nowadays that's what happens to you if you don't toe the line completely. So yeah, it's a place where big ideas are discussed. And as you were getting to, Robert Oppenheimer attended. Yeah, and that comes back around to the Manhattan Project. If you don't know what the Manhattan Project is, because we didn't really go over it, it was the project name for the development of nuclear weapons. Right, and I just want to get to this, because the club motto is, weaving spiders come not here, which implies... Leave all your business dealings and your networking and all that kind of baloney outside of the gates of the camp. They're there to get down to business. So here's a little paragraph that's interesting in the Wikipedia entry about leaving your outside concerns and your business networking at the door, shall we say. Here it actually talks about Oppenheimer. So when gathered in groups, bohemians usually adhere to the injunction, although discussion of business often occurs between pairs of members. Important political and business deals have been developed at the Grove. The Grove is particularly famous for a Manhattan Project planning meeting that took place there in September 1942, which subsequently led to the atomic bomb. 
Those attending this meeting included Ernest Lawrence, UC Berkeley colleague J. Robert Oppenheimer, and various military officials. The S-1 executive committee heads, such as the presidents of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, along with representatives of Standard Oil and General Electric. At the time, Oppenheimer was not an S-1 member, although Lawrence and Oppenheimer hosted the meeting. Grove members take particular pride in this event and often relate the story to new attendees. So again, as we were saying, big ideas are discussed. Yes. The war is on. It's 1942. We're in the thick of it. So what are we going to do? Let's talk about splitting atoms. Yeah. What's going to happen? Because another documentary that I had mentioned here uh, premiering on PBS called Twisting the Dragon's Tail, which talks a little bit about alchemy, also discusses, basically the topic is uranium, Twisting the Dragon's Tail. And when Oppenheimer gets on the scene, they were fearful that the Germans were developing it already. So they needed to move and move fast. Can you imagine as yeah. they were saying, what would happen if the Nazis did have the bomb? Yeah. So again, urgency, utmost matter, need to keep it secret, need to go somewhere and relax at the same time and run around and do plays and wear costumes and Yeah, have they fun. do apparently fun sort of ritualistic boys yeah. club kind of stuff around the fire. There's yeah, getting, getting uh, you know, the, the It could be its own yeah. episode and maybe, maybe it will be someday, but. Right, there's a comedy movie by Harry Shearer called The Teddy Bear's Picnic and it's about that, the hijinks that go on and the tagline is kind of funny, which is for 51 weeks a year, they run the country. For one week, they run amok. <laughs> so so that's the kind of the idea is that there's a lot of hijinks and some drunkenness and a lot of like, I would say classical nerdy stuff, doing Greek and Roman plays and... Dick Cheney gets crazy. People, well, you get, that's the point. You can't. You, you, you know, I mean, there's stories... can't see it. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> doing the sneer. Got to work on it. Yeah. There's stories of really famous people that you would know, leaders waking up on the lawn in their underwear, passed out. Yeah. Drunk. So you can do like that. I had a party like that. I don't know if there were any leaders there. Maybe future leaders, yeah. uh, certainly not at that time. Yeah. And you can go discuss stuff, you can blow off steam, and uh, when you get there, I guess, there's a little ritual that basically is the cremation of care. So that's what they called it, and the idea is that you're burning your cares away, leave the outside troubles of the world and the, the heavy weight of responsibility that's on all their shoulders, and just have a good time. But so it's Burning yeah. Man for... <laughs> for the classy. For the people the who rich clo- control the world. Yeah. Artists of any kind, writers, there's a lot of writers. So there's a lot of high-end discussion going on. Where would you expect the count to be? Like, yeah, I'm sure you want to make that. I want you to listen to the letter, which Jesse gave me permission to read from her blog that was sent to her, as she said in, in 2015, by Mr. E.B.'s grandson, Mr. R.W., By trade, my grandfather was a writer, a storyteller, but in all of his stories, he had a sense of truth. For this story, my grandfather, whose name was Mr. E.B., had written in his private journal with receipts, lists of dates, people and places, timelines, and other indications that this was more than just a story, a true tale that he was telling me. The story is, my grandfather said that while at Bohemian Grove in the 1940s, he met a man who was like a man out of time. He was mysterious, kind, extremely well-liked, yet other people didn't know who he actually was. While at the Grove, my grandfather asked the man, whom he had had people call him Marcus S. Garman, which Jesse points out is, it's almost an anagram for the Count of St. Germain, if he would have dinner with him, to which Marcus replied kindly that he only eats alone. Sound Uh familiar? Then my grandfather asked if he would rather have a drink. Marcus agreed to that, but only drank spring water, to which my grandfather said he added flavoring from a small glass bottle he kept 
in the inside breast pocket of his outdated but still new-looking jacket. Elixir of life. They talked for a while about art, science, weather, politics, literature, and of my grandfather's writings. Then the man told my grandfather a story about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He said Marcus recounted the event as if he were actually there. He said that the men who were to sign this declaration were all afraid of being punished for treason. He stated that this took place at Carpenter's Hall in August of 1775. Upon hearing this from the cowardly men, the man, Marcus said, a stranger stood up and revolted. The gods gave America the freedom to be. This story has stuck with me since my grandfather told me this in the early 90s. It brings me to the point I am writing to you today. I have been reading into the men in black phenomena, and I've come across an entry in one of the books by Jim Keith that mirrors the man Marcus's story. The book, Casebook on the Men in Black, has a passage in chapter 2, pages 28 and 29, that has the men that signed the Declaration of Independence in the State House in Philadelphia. They are afraid their lives will be forfeit for their audacity. A voice rang out, and they noticed a stranger. He cried out, God has given America to be free. All right, it continues, but I just wanted to read that much of it. Yeah, interesting. So let's look at some common ground here. Count-like behavior, Mm -hmm. not eating, drinking only water with some kind of colored mixture. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff is consistent. We're talking about the 1940s now. Right. It's consistent with the behavior of the man who was known as the Count of St. Germain 200 years earlier. You don't know, and people will say, look, this guy read the book. Isabel Cooper Oakley's book, which came out in 1912, and he was fascinated by it and just kind of started thinking this guy was maybe the Count and embellishing some aspects of it. Who knows? Or you could just say he met this guy who was kind of strange, and then he put it together. We don't know. We have no evidence one way or the other. That's true. But it's an interesting place to have met somebody like that. If you're going to meet the Count, like I said, that's a place I would expect him. Yeah, and also, it's not something that you can sneak into and goof around. You're not going to crash the Bohemian Grove and do a bit or play a character. Right, right. You have to have credentials to get in there. Yes, everyone who's there is known to each other. I did, by the way, Google Marcus S. Garman. I came up with nothing. So if he's a real person and he's significant enough to be a member of the Bohemian Grove, he does not exist on the internet. There is, of course, Garmin GPS. I think you did some searches and found an engineer named Marcus who worked at Garmin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, from the uh, the Garmin of Scandinavia. So yeah. you get a lot of uh, Scandinavian pages come up. Uh, I would have loved it, though, if Marcus S. Garman had been the, the, the mysterious founder <laughs> of, the... of, Gar- of GPS or well, something like that. But yeah. let's, it didn't happen. So the next thing I want to talk about is I did ask Jesse who she thought the Count might really be. We've mentioned Prince Rogozzi and the Rogozzi family a lot, and that is one of the more prevailing theories, but it is by no means the only one. There are lots of people that think his birth predated the Rakotsi family, in which case, and we'll talk more about this in the theories episode, our part three, which is going to be next week, which is where we're really going to get off the chain with this story. Well, there's several levels of way out there woo-woo, as some of our audiences love to have picked up on. You can skip that one if you're not ready for us to (laughs) to get a little wacky. But Look, you're always invited to like, look, if we start to go off the rails here, you can just stop listening. Yeah, (laughs) just press stop. (laughs) Just just stop. Yeah. Go visit Travis and Peter Coleman. Yeah, wait till we do a a Wild West story. Yes. Background here. Or Chris Cogswell's extremely fact-based podcast. Yeah. The mad scientist. Yeah. But yeah. if you want to know about uh, science and how it relates to sometimes philosophy and different things like that, it's yeah. a good one to check out. 
What's interesting is that I was just now thinking, as you said that, about some origin stories for the Count. There are several levels of even being way out there and woo-woo and new age. And for me, I just noticed one dividing point is that, okay, so say he is born of Prince Rogozzi II and actually had a birth date in the 1680s, 1690s. Yeah. And then he got to be a teenager somewhere along the line. He... He got a hold of some magic formula that wasn't crazy, but can extend life a little bit. And that's not so nuts. They're working on it now. Think of how long people live as compared to back then. And we were talking about this earlier today. Compared with infant death rates and you average out people's lives, well, still, you're not living that long. And even- We did have, although we did, I'm glad you brought that up because we did want to acknowledge, we had a listener who contacted us. I can't remember- we have so many social media platforms, I honestly can't remember which way this came in. Right. It was a Facebook message or a tweet or an email. But he pointed out that the life expectancy number is skewed by the high rate of infant mortality and does not necessarily reflect the average age that people are living to. Exactly. But it's basically yeah. that number is saying you're lucky if you made it past, you know, <laughs> being born. <laughs> yeah. Or no. three or four or something. As far as those numbers, I'll tell you about just pure age. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, several hundred <laughs> years ago when I was a kid, 70, late 60s, I think for men, for American men in a fairly prosperous country was mid to late 60s. And now look where it is. I think you're, we're up to, you know, mid 70s. Yeah. So as we develop science and, and nutrition, our understanding of nutrition gets better and people cut out their bad habits, we are living longer. That's camp A, that it's woo-woo, and that he somehow lived to be 160, 50 years old. Who who knows? That's very strange, but he did it, and he looked kind of the same all throughout. The other area of woo-woo is that, oh, no, he's much older than that. In fact, uh, he is the wandering Jew. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I did ask Jesse who she thought he might have been, and she came up with an entirely new theory on her own from her research that I thought was pretty fascinating. And I have to say, it's something that occurred to me in the back of my mind. It flashed across my mind as well. But she sort of had gelled it up a little bit. So let's go to her after I asked her if she thought he was Prince Rokotsi's son. There's a lot of evidence for the Rokotsi. There's the whole story about the wandering Jew, of course, uh, which is a popular one. Some people think that he was the last of the Medici family which kind of ties in to the Rokotsi family. I came up with this kind of wild and crazy half-baked theory because I had just written this paper about the counts, and I was starting to gather my research material for my historiography and thesis papers, which was on Vlad Dracula. The TV was on on the History Channel, and it was on a documentary about the Knights Templar. There was like this boom, boom kind of moment in my head, and it's just... What if Vlad Dracula, okay, so Vlad Dracula's treasure was like a great mythos, and Dracula is, of course, part of the Order of the Dragon, which, if you look at the Order of the Dragons, it's all related to St. George versus the dragon, which the St. George cross is on the Knights Templar, and once the Knights Templar went away, all these different orders came out that were kind of based on the Knights Templar. All this uh, Templar treasure was lost for centuries, and I think they still haven't found the majority of it. And there was rumors that the Templar treasure that Dracula had could possibly contain the Holy Grail. And <laughs> it's like a big stretch to the imagination. And with some of the descriptions of the counts, it could very well be Vlad Dracula with his mustache shaved off and his hair trimmed. And Wow. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's super interesting. So you had this, you know, it's funny that you should say this because I had the same kind of thought when I was reading Oakley's book and all the connections were being made with the Rogozzi family. And I was surprised, honestly, with all the theories about the Count and his background, I did not stumble across any that implied that he was connected to Dracula or even the further end of the whole idea of vampires and all that, which yeah, I was kind no, of, you know, I was surprised. Like I said, it's like some kind of half idea that I came up with. And it was literally in two blinks. I just had like this download of information in my head. And so I haven't really looked into it. It's just something kind of presented it a little bit on my website just to see what kind of responses I got. Sure. And I was expecting stuff like, hey, you're really crazy. And this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so I'm surprised I didn't get a whole bunch of that kind of stuff. Okay, so there you have it. She's got this idea, <laughs> which you and I both independently yeah. thought too when we read everything. And I will say, when you look at portraits of Dracula or Dracul, <laughs> Vlad Dracul, and you take the mustache off, he and the Count do bear more than a passing resemblance, but that could be... A coincidence, I don't know. Well, it's but it's, it's not. It's interesting. Yeah, they both don't look like Kevin Pollock to me. But and, well, I think the count. That one picture of the count looks kind of like Kevin Pollock. We'll see. Yeah, no, no. Like the, I said, I'll right. make, I'm going to make a thing for the posting day. Right. We'll put all three of them in there. But you're talking. <laughs> but see, now you're talking about uh, Vlad the Third, Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Dracula, right? Yes, I am. I don't think he was called Dracula until Bram Stoker called him that. Well, I think that he was, was just Dracul, we, but I, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. he was the second son of Vlad Dracul. Right. So it's kind of a name title business. It's very confusing. Because yes. there's, again, they're all naming each other. <laughs> they're, uh, they're issued the same thing generation after generation. But his time period would be 1428 to 1431 to 1476, 77. So we're talking now a long time before the supposed counts. Time, or 1791 or 94. Rogozzi yeah, family. 1694, that, that kind it's of It's 300 so, years earlier. The Dracul yeah, so, Empire. Right. Yeah. But this is what I see that's interesting about it, because what makes it flash across our minds, I believe, are that similar things line up. And as we both know, having looked into some of these legends and history, is that people will lock on to a few specific items about something, and then that becomes locked into the history. That's the legend. Yeah. So the thing of seeming to live a very long time, the weird diet, if you look at it from the Count's perspective, it's like, well, he seems to be immortal. You don't see him eating real food. He just kind of eats gruel and maybe some drinking some strange potion that's tinted. Who knows? Yeah. So there are some things about that that I could see becoming legend. And certainly the Count has his own legend, as did Vlad. And how they might cross over, I think that's why she's not getting too much flack for that. People are like, well, we don't know. I mean, maybe. Again, if you look at the personalities, certainly Vlad Third Dracula, had a chip on his shoulder. And he was a pretty violent guy to earn the title, the Impaler. Yes, but you know what? He was seen as a hero for keeping the Ottomans out. And by the way, I want to point out that Jesse had some really fascinating, she knew a whole lot about him and had some fascinating insight on him. And it was too much for this episode of the show, if you can believe that. We, actually, <laughs> right. we do cut things, believe it or not. Yeah. But we're going to include her full interview on our Patreon page. And you can hear her talk about the history of Dracul and why he was impaling people. And it's really fascinating. But you have to be a supporter at Patreon. And we're going 
going to make that available to anyone at the $1 level and above, which means anyone who pledges. Oh, very nice. Yeah, so I'll get that up there in a few days. If you look at the personalities as described at the time of the two individuals, that does not line up in that. Or he had a huge 300 years. He got really to be a softy and a very generous, nice guy. Yeah, well, I mean, you saw Highlander, right? You go through changes. <laughs> you go through changes over the course of your immortal life. They were people of royal blood. But if you look at what happened to Vlad and his father and brother, and you look at what happened to, to the Rogozzi men and generations previous, that lines up. Yeah, the, the family. persecuted family. Because, yes, there's a lot of bloody war going on, persecution, imprisonment, bad, bad times. Yeah. And so you could see how that formed their behavior later. Now, if you look at the count... By his own slight admission, whether you can believe that or not, he claims that, you know, as a child, he was wandering the woods. His mother dropped him off at a very young age, and he was raised by others, but got a good education. Nothing really to complain about. Again, leading to a very gentler disposition. But I do, like I said, I will see that where certain legends can get melded together. All right. So we're about to wrap up here. Before we went, though, I wanted to ask Jesse what she thought, whether or not she thought that the Count of St. Germain was immortal. I personally believe that he has some sort of extended life. Okay. Just from everything that I've read. That's what and I wanted so, to know. I'm so glad you said that. So what are the major factors that contribute to your belief in that? He's mentioned in so many memoirs and, and other documents where everyone's like, he appears to be a certain age. And people, they mention that he pretty much started his tour in Europe in 1710. And you don't just start out as like a 45 to 50-year-old and then continue to look that way all the way through 1820. Right. There's something. Maybe he found what he was looking for to extend his life, and it stopped at the age that he found it. So, yeah, that's what you feel like maybe he got to a certain point, and then he was able to arrest aging in his own body. <laughs> it seems so far-fetched. Uh, no, but... <laughs> but it's kind of like a tug of war with myself, actually, because my historian side says, that's so subjective, you can't think that way. But the rest of me goes, that's really cool. Maybe. Maybe. What if? So for you, the 1784 death is really just a blip on the radar because of the continued appearances that happened after that time. Correct. Yeah. So moving forward, what are other particular instances that do carry a lot of weight for you post-1784. This is what I'm wondering. Why can you not say that the person who appeared after 1784 maybe was an imposter or someone claiming to be the Count? Did he meet people that had known him prior to 1784? Yes. Okay. In 1785, he was at a Freemason convention in Paris. Right. There were people there that knew him before he died. And then the next year after that, he had a meeting with the Empress of Russia and she knew him because he knew her mother. He knew some of the military leaders of Russia. So she knew him before he had died as well, though I believe only briefly. He met up with Countess de Admar. Yes. And she was like buddy-buddy with him during King Louis XV's court. Yes. They're longtime friends. And she actually writes about meeting up with him a couple times up to 1820. Wow. Okay. Yeah. If you look back in early, like ancient history, these kings, people of power, a lot of them had really long lifespans. The Sumerian kings list had outrageous lifespans. Way too hard to fathom. We're talking like 36, 
thousand years right. <laughs> or something crazy like that. Right. But then if you move to the Bible in the first section there, Genesis, how long did Noah live? It makes you wonder, like, did something get lost there? When do you think your book is going to be finished? Well, I'm always hoping sooner than later. But in reality, the majority of my book will be finished probably by the end of the summer. But I really need to get over to Europe to go through really boring records that most people would never want to go through, like Venetian business records or land ownership records, all from the 18th century. It's going to be really tedious and grueling. And I don't speak German, and a lot of it's going to be German. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't even read German. I've been putting it off for a couple of years. Well, it's a daunting task. Yeah, I might have to find someone to help me out with that at some point. The only thing I would say is uh, be careful in light of the past researchers and some of these stories. You know what happens, happens. If it turns into something really awesome, an Indiana Jones thing or <laughs> Vinci Code thing, even better. Right. I could use some adventure. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. All right, so thanks again to Jesse Desmond for giving us uh, so much of her time and expertise on the Count of St. Germain. And thank you for all of your research that you're presenting to the world on the internet with your blog. Yeah, it's very cool. And we're looking forward to getting uh, Thomas Sleeman's book, which we have recently ordered and should have that. Yeah, it's a, a lot days. of cool stories. It's, it is one of those great One uh, of his books. books. He has like yeah. 50 books, but uh, if but you're But they're listening, all filled with uh, stories that, the kind of stories that we like to cover. Yes, and if you're listening, Mr. Sleeman, I hope I'm saying your name right. Yeah. I just want to say thank you for uh, giving us permission to use some of your stuff. We might be talking about that one particular chapter in part three of this series next week, which right. will be about all the conclusions in our theories, which we've already mentioned. And that one will be the crazy one that makes rational uh, intellectual people <laughs> angry. Getting then, in, the, in, not the way back machine, but the way out machine. <laughs> the way out machine. Yeah. I do want to say that that was really interesting about the Sumerians. Also, yes. I particularly remember that Zul from Ghostbusters was, I believe, <laughs> 8,000 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Looking pretty good. Yeah, and looked like Pat Benatar, which is great. Yeah. Maybe Zool She knew also looks great. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> Pat herself looks great. But yeah. the point is that it was a different world back then. And one of the, the terms I loved when we started talking about Oak Island. Yeah. And there's certainly, there's definitely some kind of account connection possibly to Oak Island. Out of well, anything, when you, she you mentioned make... the Templars and she mentioned yeah, exactly. the Holy Grail and the lost treasure and all the things that haven't been found, there's a lot of people that think that's what they're going to find if they do find anything and, at Oak right. Island. I'm not sure how the Oak Island research circle or group that we are faintly connected to with uh, Peggy, yes. <laughs> kind of how they would feel. But I, I know that she knew about it and she was like, oh, great, you're doing the, the count. Let's hear this. Yes. I don't know if we've done them justice, but there is a possible connection to the count in that if something is down there, like it's the Delta of Enoch, the uh, golden Delta with the name of God on it. Yeah. Some kind of holy of holy treasures. <laughs> and Scott still thinks it's Fred. <laughs> if you have something like that, and you're talking about, uh, or I say antediluvian, pre-flood, that's what Jesse was talking about, is that the patriarchs of the Old Testament, the people who lived back then, yeah, they were 500, 600, 900 years old. Noah lived to be 950, and he's the second oldest person mentioned in the Bible, and then the only person older was Methuselah, who was yes. 960 or 70 or Yeah, something. Adam was supposedly very old, and then you have people like, well, that's all make-believe anyway, that it was an allegory. Yes, there are these whole spans that they kind of cover, so they just made them that old. 
whatever the alternate well, there's, theory is. There's other people that will tell you that pre-flood, due to God's mercy and a different diet and yeah. other options, that man lived longer. Right. The studies of gerontology, people are trying to find how to arrest cellular breakdown. And, and they've free made radicals. breakthroughs. And there has been some breakthroughs. And there are people who, who think that it might be possible in the next 40, 50 years maybe to live another 50 years longer. Yes. You could be 150 and still enjoy good health. And that's my point earlier. It said, yeah, you don't want to live another 30 years when you start being 100 another 30 years of just being really infirm. I'm not positive, but I think it was Queen that sang that song in Highlander, which is a <laughs> right. movie about being immortal, if you haven't sure. seen it, Who Wants to Live Forever. It's a beautiful yeah. song. Because well, it, it's, there's a lot of downsides to it. Yeah. You, your your friends gonna, are gone. Your right. family's gone. Way right. gone. Yeah. Can't fall in love with anybody. But I guess if you have the elixir of life, you can always be like, hey, uh, you want to go out for a drink? Well, it's pretty enticing. Or you can have <laughs> the, the formula that keeps you looking uh, 25 when you're 50. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so to wrap up part two of The Count of St. Germain, I just wanted to take a brief look back at the philosophies on who the Count might have been. Let's go with the most prevailing theory that he might have been the son of Prince Francis II Rakotsi, in right. which case he was born either in 1694 or 1691 around that area. That means that in 1784, the death at Eckenford that we talked about, where he had the meager possessions and died while his friend... Prince Carl was away. Yeah, Prince Charles. Mm -hmm. Prince Charles of Hesse Castle. He would have been around 90 years old. Right. Very old for that time, but not impossible. However, there were people that had known him in life, clearly, and they saw him the very next year in 1785. Right. There were also people that knew him personally, that swore that they saw him and met him and talked to him and everything was fine. In 1820. I think that's the Countess Datamar. The Countess Datamar. Yeah. She knew him very well. Had he been born in 1694, in 1820, he would have been 126. Mm. Then... Now you're starting to push it. Then he disappeared (laughs) for 40 years, turning back up in 1860, and maybe just leaving, as Jesse said, to give people who knew him a chance to move on to the afterlife themselves. Right. So that he could come back and... Make a fresh start. Well, to a new generation. At that point, he would have been 166. If he showed up at the Bohemian Grove in the 1940s, he would have been 246. If he made it to the Bilderberg Group meeting, Mm. 272. Impressive. If he's still alive today, 323 years old. And that's if he was born in 1694. And some people think he was born earlier because he was described in 1710 as having the appearance already of a 40 or 50 year old man, which he arrested at. Right. He stopped at that age. If we go just one step further yeah, and say that he was Vlad III Dracul, more commonly known as Dracula or Vlad the Impaler, Mm -hmm. then today he would be 590. Mm. You know what? I think that's an an outline. Oh, sorry. Sorry. It's an outline. Yeah. Okay, good. Don't make fun of it. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. We'll be back in a week with our theory episode for this series on the Count of St. Germain. We'd like to thank Blue Apron, The Great Courses Plus, and ZipRecruiter for sponsoring the show and remind you that you can help Critical Mass, the Young Adult Cancer Alliance, by texting the word CRITICAL to 82623. 82623. Thank you. Special thanks to John Boland. 
Hi. Hi. I'm Rebecca McKinley. My name is Mike Waterhouse. I'm Kevin Ricotta. And I give permission to Astonishing Legends. Astonishing Legends. Astonishing Legends podcast. To use my voice, however they see. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.